Welcome to the Something Something Experience Podcast, Episode 57. I'm Michael John Simpson. We have exciting news. Something2XP now has a permanent website. That's right, our official site and blog is now something2xp.net. We also have our first sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com. Get a free audio book download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash something2xp. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. If you sign up for the free trial using the URL audibletrial.com slash something2xp, they'll give us a little something in return. Help us out, won't you? This week, our guest is L.A. filmmaker, actor, and writer Patrick Duncan. Patrick's latest project is a beautiful short film called Jess and Laura being seen at a short film festival near you. Kitty, Patrick, and I discussed karaoke, theater, Jess and Laura, movies, screenwriting, social justice, and Doctor Who. Check your privilege. Here's episode 57 of the Something Something Experience. Get here. Why don't you get your, go ahead and scoot in a little bit so you're sure thing. close to the microphone. Mm-hmm. This is a pretty good dynamic microphone. Oh, cool. It's okay. good to scoot in. So, mm-hmm. hi, Patrick. Welcome. It's, hi. Uh, it's good to see you again. Good to see you, Michael. Yeah, we uh, we met at Ground Control. Uh, right. yeah. Andrew Holguin, former guest and uh, friend of the podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, lots of Ground Control folks. And, uh, and uh, yes, but we make movies uh, post-show party mentor for several years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, how long have you been going to Ground Control? Uh, well, I've been going to Ground Control since Andrew's um, regular gig in Hollywood on Wednesday nights. Three, three, uh, came to an end at three, three clubs. clubs. Yeah. At three clubs. And sort of by default, he wound up hosting my film collective's uh, post-workshop Wednesday night mm-hmm. parties where mm-hmm. we do a lot of networking and brainstorm a lot of projects and that sort of thing. And we found that doing karaoke was a fantastic way to get to know each other. We all got to know Andrew. We loved Andrew. That came to an end, and because I'm a Burbank guy and he's in Glendale, sure. it just made sense for me right to start door. going on, on Monday night. I found that as an actor, doing karaoke was a fantastic outlet for me. That, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that because I miss performing. When I moved out to Southern California, I decided, well... You know, I want to do film. Mm-hmm. Stage is going to take up a lot of my time. I was a uh, involved father with uh, two children, mm-hmm. and so there just didn't seem to be time to commit to stage work. And I really missed live performances. Sure, sure. And it turned out to be a very good way for me to, you know, remind myself of all my vocal work. I was yeah. taught voice for stage by two of the greatest voice for stage teachers ever, Kristen Linklater and uh, Peggy Loft. Uh-huh. Peggy Loft, founder of the Juilliard School. Yeah, I've heard of those names, definitely. And, uh, yeah, so um, it was actually a really, really good outlet for me. It helped. It also helped me to do things that I was not comfortable with doing. Uh, I immediately began trying to sing Led Zeppelin songs. Sure, I sure. Did, I was like, I was like, <laughs> I do a mean rock and roll myself. <laughs> yeah, you gotta be, you know, you gotta be able to allow yourself to fail if you want to be a performer. Well, I you know? a lot of people shit on karaoke or whatever, mm-hmm. and I know there's a lot of like hipster culture around it and that and, and this and that. But the more I've done it, and the more I've been around it, and the more I've been around. Uh, 
more familial karaoke Mm -hmm. where people there's like this family of friends Mm -hmm. and it's not just hey let's go get drunk and do this shitty thing at a bar it's we're going specific this is a destination for us this is something we're planning on doing Mm -hmm. that we do regularly that we do every week or Mm -hmm. you know very regularly with a group of people that we love and support and ground control is a very supportive environment but the more i've done ground control karaoke the more i've found that there are more creative types Mm -hmm. who utilize that as a as a uh, way to keep up their their performance feedback motor running to keep those skills fresh and 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 for me karaoke is not ever as been as much about the um technical singing aspect it's about the performance exactly because you can sing like utter Mm -hmm. dog shit there's Mm -hmm. kitty hey kitty you can sing like utter dog shit Uh but if you sell it, mm-hmm. you can knock it out of the park. Absolutely. And I've seen people go and total, mm-hmm. you know, dog a song, but they're mm-hmm. knocking it out of the park to such a degree that it makes the performance yeah. just epic. It's a great mode for self-expression. Exactly. It's, uh, you know... Talking and about Grand Patrol. I figured. It <laughs> really fed well into our film collective because we're a large group. We have new people coming every week and mm-hmm. to have this party that we went to where we could have this... Uh, mode of self-expression immediately following. We all got to know each other so well as a result of that. I miss it. Uh, We're now uh, going to be moving where my film collective We Make Movies is at a temporary location on around the La Cienega Pico area and we want to try and move more towards West Hollywood because we also have our annual film festival happens during uh, the Fringe Festival. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there's all those theaters that are happening, and we always pull in a whole bunch of new members. That's cool. uh, over mm-hmm. by the Dragonfly, right? Uh, I believe all so. All those little uh, yeah. Theater, yeah. theaters right by that, yeah. by Dragonfly, it, it, Santa Monica. <laughs> For about three solid years, we were at uh, the Theater Asylum, which is uh, Santa Monica and Vine. And that's now become, I believe, a Lutheran school, I think. <laughs> so no more theater there for no. us. No. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of... We go to the Dragonfly Club there on... Um, it's on, every third Saturday of the month yeah. for Disco Necro. Yeah, oh, Santa, uh, Santa Monica and uh, I always forget the cross street, but it's Kalinga. right there. But it's right... It, yeah, it's just a little mm-hmm. tiny skosh west of there, mm-hmm. like a couple blocks. But then there's all those little theaters, those little yeah. independent theaters yeah. right there. So. Yeah, that was fantastic. And I do love seeing live theater. Mm-hmm. I just have mm-hmm. had such a hard time committing sure, to sure. anything. It's been about 15 years since I've done live theater. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know... Luckily, with the uh, Film Collective, we do have sort of a performance outlet because we do writer's workshops. Cool. Usually about two two weeks out of the month, two Wednesdays out of the month, we'll do writer's workshops. So we get up mm-hmm. and, and we have this an opportunity for actors to read and writers to hear yeah. over it. Well, for, you know, as much as like we're like the entertainment capital of the world and there's such a focus on like film and television, I'm glad that there is a lot of live theater in mm-hmm. Los Angeles, you yeah. know? Like mm-hmm. people don't think of LA as a place for live theater, but it's here mm-hmm. and like people are doing really great stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's a lot of smaller independent theater too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've got a friend who's really heavy into the Sacred Fools Theater and mm-hmm. he's producing mm-hmm. plays, writing plays, pro- yeah. you know, always producing stuff there. A couple so. of my friends are with Sacred Fools. There's a lot of stuff in North Hollywood too for mm-hmm. live theater. Like a friend of mine was just in um, Dracula that was playing like mm-hmm. October and November. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that it's there mm-hmm. and I'm glad that it exists. Yeah, there's also Canyon Theater Guild up yeah. in Santa Clarita and there's, 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 a, <laughs> there's a ton. And the improv groups. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So many UCB? improv things. UCB. I was a member of uh, LA Connection when I first mm-hmm. moved here for a year. For That's years. how you know Chris, right? Chris, Chris 
Chris Roman. Yeah, that's how I know yeah. Chris Roman. Yeah, <laughs> another friend of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, Jess and Laura. Okay. I watched that today, and and did you get a chance to yeah, see it? And, yeah, I watched um, it. Go, well, you you start. How, what did you? What were your thoughts? Um, the first thing that stood out to me was the acting. Like, mm. I thought the casting was really good, and both of the people in it, you know, like they did a really good job, like conveying mm-hmm. um, sort of how. I'm trying to think of a, like, not shitty way to say this, but, like, they, they're both, <laughs> yeah. you know, have disabilities. Yeah. And, like, mm-hmm. you know, that was handled, like, I feel in a really, like, respectful way, you know? Yeah, kind oh, of, like, good. mental illness mm-hmm. and also mental otherness, right. I guess. Yeah. Mental challenge. Mentally challenged, yeah. 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 And two different, two distinctly different kinds. Right. Exactly. And, and I, I found it to be this delightful little sliver mm-hmm. of a story. Right. Like like when you do a brain you, you when you're going to to take a brain and scan it mm-hmm. of a person who's deceased, you you take it and you freeze it and you do slices and you do these mm-hmm. scanning yeah. and slice by slice and it was like that slice of of a life that little It was little, very much a moment in time. A moment right? in yeah. time. And it, made, and it and it and it took my brain and just cracked it open and okay. made me wonder so many things and and raised these big mm-hmm. lofty high level questions for me. Where did these people come from? Where yeah. are they going? Mm-hmm. Why was she following him on the road? Yeah. Why? 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 Yeah. But yeah. you almost didn't need those answers mm-hmm. because there was such a tender richness to that little. Mm-hmm. moment that that here's these two people that that seems to be are going to be very important to one another mm-hmm. for whatever length of time that will be yeah and this is that moment that they met well, and, and and the big thing for me is that they were just two people they mm-hmm. weren't two people with mental disabilities or two people mm-hmm. you know who like you know couldn't connect because of their mental mental disabilities they were just two people and they were so unafraid there's so mm-hmm. so so such lack of fear mm-hmm. uh, other than a particular moment where there's a little bit of fear there but at the at first it's just these two people very innocent people mm-hmm. asking each other unfiltered innocent mm-hmm. non-judgmental but just questions of just pure curiosity yeah and it was it was beautiful oh, there's no you. other word for it than beautiful it was such a moment and the way it was shot, the way that the, the the choice to use panoramic widescreen, that ultra widescreen shot, and again, that for me that lent to this is a slice, you know. Mm-hmm. There's because there's things above and things below you're not seeing, and you're really seeing this wide thing. And there was the there's the one shot of of uh, Laura, 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 mm-hmm. um, and. In a scene, in a movie or film or play or whatever, when you would normally have direct an actor to look inward toward the empty space in the film, in mm-hmm. the, in the scene, she's mm-hmm. looking outward from it, mm-hmm. almost like she doesn't, because that's that moment of fear for her. Mm-hmm. That that's that moment she doesn't want to look into the empty space. She mm-hmm. wants to look outward and away from those things in her life that have been difficult mm-hmm. and even painful for her. And that was an interesting, great direction choice mm, of you. having her look away from just that mottled green background of the scenery. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. You've been widescreening sorry, sorry, sorry. my face sorry, sorry. for a while. So, but to have that choice of, of mm-hmm. her looking away from that and, and, 
it was it oh, was like you. I said, just beautiful. And the way it was shot, the way it was, and the slow pullouts and everything at the end, and 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 if you haven't seen it, it'll be available, I'm sure, to, for people to see. Yeah, we're trying to keep it. Um, off of the internet a little bit mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I do love this when it's in a big theater. We've seen it in a mm. commercial theater several times. Nice. And the panoramic thing is just, it's breathtaking because I, I remember when uh, we had a screening in New York and I was looking at it and I was realizing it's like, oh my God, I'm looking at this and everything is the size that it was while we were actually there. Right. It's like mm-hmm. you've got a six foot person and you've got expansive you know things seem to be either like larger than they were in real life or at least the very same size they were in real life and it was so exciting one of the reasons that we chose to do panoramic is because i grew up watching a type of film that i miss very much uh what now is being kind of referred to as the early 70s renaissance Mm. and stuff like the graduate and midnight cowboy was all shot with that anamorphic thing panavision or whatever yeah, yeah. exactly and and even today it's like um because people are so used to seeing you know back then people were used to television screens that were four by three now they're used to 16 by nine so even the um the four point three five seems very narrow to people because they're used to 16 by 9. This is even narrower than that. Oh, wait, wait, so. What's been Mm -hmm. happening as of late is the trend is for people to consume media on their mobile devices. Right. Like, people are watching TV less on an actual TV and Mm -hmm. more, like, on their phones and on their iPads. So, Mm -hmm. like, making something like this, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said, it's meant to be seen, like, on a big screen, but, like, eventually you're going to have to put it out there. So how are you going to deal with the fact that, like, people are going to be seeing it on a screen that's, like, just the size of a phone. Well, I'm glad you asked that. (laughs) Uh, Because I actually did do a lot of, you know, because it is currently in a non-standard aspect ratio, Mm -hmm. particularly for someone who's going to be watching on a phone. It had been my thought when we shot it, because this was the... uh, this was the aspect ratio that was given to us by the anamorphic lens and the camera that we used. Um, that you know, I would make it a more traditional, slightly more traditional uh, aspect ratio by, you know, removing the sides from it. But as you pointed out so articulately, and thank you very much uh, for that unsolicited endorsement of the aspect ratio, um, it just looks beautiful in that aspect ratio. I actually did a cut of it early on where I, you know, made it larger mm-hmm. and I just didn't like it as much. So we don't have to worry like a lot of people when they make a short film they want to market it as a short right. film. I'm not going to be doing that with this largely because the music that I used for it which I believe is is perfect music for the setting and mm-hmm. for the story yeah. Uh, is licensed by um, the indie folk artist Bonnie Prince Billy. And we have the festival license for this only um, because it's going to be extremely expensive. Now, a couple of notes about that. Um, Bonnie Prince Billy, a.k.a. Will Oldham, does not allow his music, normally does not allow any of his music to be used for film. Because he doesn't like seeing it recontextualized. It's very, very personal to him. Mm-hmm. He right. understands that to be um, particularly an indie artist, you need your stuff out there, so you need to do stuff for soundtracks. So what he prefers to do is he prefers to be commissioned 
to write things specifically yeah. for other things. Yeah, my boyfriend does that. Um, oh, mm-hmm. right now he's currently scoring um, a LGBTQ documentary, mm. um, but he's kind of saying the same thing. Like, there's a distinct line between like the stuff he does for a paycheck and right. the stuff he does for creative self-expression. Exactly. And it's the same with me. Yeah. Like as an artist, we talked about this on the last podcast. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and and when I got the licensing to use some of his older music, which is what I had been listening to uh, when I was in pre-production for Jess and Laura, so it sort of organically became part of the film for me, um, a lot of people freaked out because they went, how did you do that? He doesn't let his stuff be used. (laughs) Uh, He's very well known in the indie film community and very sought after. And I just do have to let other indie film makers know don't get your hopes up i grew up with the guy okay uh, we're, we're both from louisville kentucky um w- his music and my writing have the exact same influences uh because we sat together in a classroom and learned about them together cool um and cool. so he basically let me know that's like i'm gonna let you have this as a favor so do they yeah. teach Kentucky bluegrass like in public schools? Like is that something that you were exposed N- to? Not necessarily in the public schools, but we were also part of – we went to the same public school, but we also went to a um, high school conservatory. Oh, so like a um, high Yeah, school. like, a, like a, yeah. kind of like, like that. We, we had an uh, extracurricular <laughs> program that we went mm-hmm. to. And it, this is interesting because the founder of that, uh, her uncle was a folk singer – named John Jacob Niles, who was probably the prime influence on Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this was a guy who Bob Dylan said in an interview, I knew what kind of music I wanted to do when I heard this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we were steeped in this folk tradition that actually mm-hmm. Bob Dylan had been steeped yeah. in. Right? Well, yeah. I mean, it's so important not mm-hmm. just, you know, for kids, but also for, like, the history, mm-hmm. you know, of the region and everything. Like, I'm so glad that this exists. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Well, yeah, that, that's the other the other sense that I got from the piece was this isn't just a setting. This is this is home. Yeah. And this is there was great care in how it was shot. There was great care in in the tone and the mood and the mm. lighting and the wind and the and the mm. and the the sun and the leaves and the it rustling of leaves. It felt like a place. Like yeah, yeah. you said home oh, and like yeah. I I can't connect with it right. as mm-hmm. home for me. Well, no, no, I meant as mm-hmm. home for the filmmaker. Yeah, how I meant yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a it felt Southern personal. California it felt girl, personal. Yeah, Thank it you. Because like people, a very yeah. specific yeah. place. Yeah, people yeah. shoot people shoot stuff wherever they can, mm-hmm. mostly out of convenience or mm-hmm. out of this is what this is what we have to work with or or whatever. But this this felt everything everything about this seemed mm-hmm. intentional. It is it is very personal. This yeah. particular story is very personal. Um, you know, and basically the things they say, a lot of the stories that they say, I can trace to things in my own childhood. Mm -hmm. And, um, a lot of people have come up to me and said, I had this deja vu watching your film. I was remembering things. And what I equate that to, the reason I think that exists, that people are having this is because I had that when writing. Sure, sure. And we have a, um, we have a set of values that we try to live by at We Make Movies, and one of them is make the movie you want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that if you want the audience to have an emotional experience, you first and foremost have to take responsibility for having that for yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you share it. That all bl- yeah. came through. That all right, thank came you. through. Yeah. 
It mm-hmm. felt like, like I said, like a moment in time, but the kind of moment in time that you get when you're looking at like an antique. Like it made mm. me think of somebody looking at like an <laughs> yeah. antique watch. Yes. That's a great, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's, well, that's very astute. And that yeah. brings up um, what a lot of people ask me about it, which is, is it a period piece? And the answer is, yes, it is a period piece, but it wasn't when I wrote it, because I wrote the script a very, very long time ago. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the story basically, um, I will divulge a little bit of a secret as Jess and Laura travels the festival circuit, (laughs) that it is um, a series of scenes from a feature script. Mm-hmm. So it is part of a larger work. However, don't get your hopes up. The larger work has a lot more unanswered questions, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I sort of thought that it's like, well, if people like Jess and Laura and they're carried along by this, then they'll do okay with the feature because the feature is equally challenging mm-hmm. in that you don't get a lot of information. But it's the same background. reason that I liked mm-hmm. Mad Max Fury Road. Like, I'm sick of these movies that just spoon-feed the audience yes. all this exposition, and it's like, here you go, mm-hmm. here's all the answers. Like, there's no room for imagination in right. that. And, like, you need that space to tell a good I, story. I wanted, you know, like I like to say, I like to say is that the short films that I grew up with were narrated by Rod Serling, and they were called yes, Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. You know, so yeah. and those yeah, were always yeah. open ended, well, always challenging. It's a masterclass yes. in good storytelling exactly. because each one like was able to tell a story within like the fifteen minutes, and it was mm-hmm. a complete story, like with a reversal, with character mm-hmm. development, with everything yeah. you needed, and it was just so self-contained. Like, yeah, Richard Matheson and and even Rod Serling. Yes. George a lot R. Of those. R. Martin used to write for mm-hmm. the Twilight Zone too. Right, so, and you know, I, I like, like leaving an audience uh, with a moral question something mm-hmm. that they have to work out themselves yeah. to be an active participant in the storytelling right right um you know um it's it's been very important now the reason i say i'm kind of keeping this a secret uh is because there are some festivals that have been glutted with people who started making feature films and they just went well we'll just cut together a scene and we'll call it a short film <laughs> and so some of them actually have ironclad policies against we don't want to see a trailer or a scene from a short film. That's mm-hmm. not what this is. This is a self-contained short film. I really, we began working on it in pre-production. It was going to be proof of concept. Mm-hmm. It was going to be just something for my director's reel and for the actors to right. show that they could do these roles in the context of a feature. But what began happening is is that as I showed it to people who weren't familiar with the uh, entire feature, they accepted it very readily as mm-hmm. a self-contained short. So I went, well, maybe let's see what we get. And we did get something that I feel could do well at festivals, and it's doing very well at festivals so far. Yeah. Um, because people don't like... People people are beginning to get tired of being spoon-fed all the exposition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, and, it's time to yeah. go back to, to more challenging storytelling. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> David Lynch isn't really doing films anymore, mm-hmm. and so we need other people to kind of... And, and, and that was going to say back to the thing of... Of, you know, as in life, you don't always get all the answers. Right. You always don't know every yeah. piece of a story. Mm-hmm. You see a little slice or overhear a conversation or, mm-hmm. or, or that kind of a thing. And it, not every, everything isn't always explained. And, mm-hmm. and David Lynch says that just like in life, you know, there's, there's all, I always leave questions in yeah. my, in my yeah. work because not everything in life is, is handed well, to you with an answer. And like I said, that leaves space for the audience's imagination to fill in those gaps. Exactly. Like, my degree is in animation, and with that came a lot of, like, education and storytelling. And, you mm-hmm. know, we looked at, like, 
the Twilight Zone, and I grew up on that stuff. But we looked at other things, you know, like some of the Simpsons episodes, mm-hmm. where they're like very self-contained in their full stories, things like that. And like, yeah, I wonder which teacher was ta- was t- showing the example <laughs> using the Simpsons. Yeah, well, you know, like shout out to Chris Roman yep. for sure, but also shout out to Marshall Vandruff, mm-hmm. who I need to ask to get on the podcast mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he has some really like famous students out there, like concept artist Justin Sweet, Kazuki Buishi, who does like all of the flight anthologies and stuff like that. But my point being is like you need that space for imagination, otherwise mm-hmm. the story is not gonna be engaging. Exactly. You know? And those stories aren't gonna stand mm-hmm. the test of time. Like I love the Avengers movies. I love all the superhero stuff and the shiny like mm-hmm. special effects and those are cool, but I don't feel like they're gonna last the same way mm-hmm. a movie like Gone with the Wind has lasted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or the same way a movie like Alien has lasted, you know, because they don't have that space to really capture mm-hmm. the audience's imagination. Right. Yeah. Well, and like in, in Alien, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and I was not a big fan of the prequel to that because I mm-hmm. liked the mystery because in Alien it begins where with... where from. <laughs> you've yeah. already got... It, you Like you walk into this thing and there's already this long history mm-hmm. you see in the, the wreckage of what they're looking at. Yeah. That, yeah. oh, there's a story that's happened before. And that's mm-hmm. what was great about Star Wars and why mm-hmm. the prequels failed to capture anyone's imagination yeah, is because well. <laughs> we liked believing that there was this story that we didn't know that we were finding out about. And, and this goes to my feature also, we begin getting exposition, but at a certain point we find out it's a lie. Oh. I love that. That's a nice reversal. Yes. That's also a very Twilight Zone yeah. reversal. Yeah. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, Guinness was uh, allegedly uh, extremely angry with George Lucas that he found out later that what he had told Luke in the first movie turned out to be a lie because he went, "You mm-hmm. should have allowed me as an actor to play that I was lying to him." Yeah. But it kind of works it still kind of yeah. works but, well you know. if you actually like yeah. <laughs> as someone with star wars tattoos like <laughs> no, um like here we if, go no, okay if, <laughs> if you kidding. look at all six movies mm-hmm. it becomes anakin's character arc, yes you know and i think that there mm-hmm. is room to do that to show anakin mm-hmm. like being the chosen one and then mm-hmm. not living up to it and then eventually at the end becoming the chosen one because you know mm-hmm. he goes back to the light side and helps kill the emperor mm-hmm. and all that there is space to do that but it should have been done well you know <laughs> right. and like yeah. i feel like george lucas for the first three movies he listened to mm-hmm. you know all of the influence that he needed to like Kirshner, his wife and Kirshner, uh, yeah, yeah. you know and everyone else was helping him with his vision but where the prequels failed is he was like well i'm fucking george lucas and let me wave my dick around and have a bunch of yes people around <laughs> me like dick yeah. You know, and you hear stories like that from people who worked on the movie. They're like, we tried to tell Mm -hmm. him that the kid that he wanted for Anakin was probably not a good actor, but he didn't listen. Mm, So, like, let that be a lesson to other storytellers. Well, and now he's going around in articles talking about why he pulled away from Star Wars, you know, with Mm -hmm. the whole Disney thing and blah, blah, blah. And everybody's Mm -hmm. like, and it almost almost kind of smacks up being a little butthurt. And it's like... Oh, well, I think, you know, but yeah. by all accounts, what mm-hmm. we're going to be getting is going to be better than what yeah. the prequels well, are. Well, I have to say, I have to say, I know two guys who are on the camera crew. Mm-hmm. They are part of J.J. Abrams' uh, company, and they were on uh, his Trek movies, and they're on the uh-huh. camera crew for this. Mm-hmm. And they have told me, they said, 
dude, we're getting Star Wars back. Right. Good. That's yeah. that's what it looks like. Yeah. That's what it looks well, like. Well, like, George Lucas is constantly going on about how Star Wars is his baby. Like, that makes mm-hmm. Disney and J.J. Abrams yeah. Child Protective Services. Like, you <laughs> fucked up. Well, I, you know, you see, that's it, is that his failure to understand that it is also the fans' baby, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, as somebody, now, here's where, here's where we get into, whenever I talk about my deep history, <laughs> we always have the question, how old are you, dude? <laughs> but I, it's it's public record because IMDb has my birthday up there, and they won't take it down. So you know. But at any rate, I was 14 years old when the first Star Wars movie came out. Oh, really? Yes. I am 52 years 52, old. 52. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so but uh, yeah, so I was, and I'd already been doing Shakespeare for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So I was. I love the fact that it was heightened. I love the fact that it was uh, taking uh, you know all these archetypal mythological sort of story mm-hmm. elements and stuff like that I recognized everything I went this is a fairy tale in outer space mm-hmm. and uh, you know I loved it and uh, I when I you know of course I being a writer even then and having a writer's mind I was going it's like oh you know, what are these other stories? What is all this mm-hmm. stuff that has happened before? And when I heard that they were going to do a young Obi-Wan, mm-hmm. I was like, that's my role. I'm <laughs> going to grow up to play Obi-Wan Kenobi when they do the prequels. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, it's Ewan McGregor. <laughs> Screw that guy. He did a great job. He was great. And yeah. I wish he'd actually gotten to play Obi-Wan. Exactly. Right. You exactly. guys, I'm sure right. you know uh, Plinkett and Red Letter Media. And uh, one of my favorite quotes at all from that is uh, when uh, the Plinkett character says, uh, Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan should have been combined into one character. Mm-hmm. Named Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah. <laughs> you know that's that was my thing. Is that yeah. I've been I've been waiting decades to see like we didn't young Obi Wan yeah. as like a Padawan. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. He I could wanted... have been a young Jedi, like yes. just fresh out of cutting off his stupid rat tail. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, that plus was... plus then the whole thing with the timeline doesn't work because Obi Wan in, in New Hope is so much older than mm-hmm. Obi Wan. Only eighteen years earlier, yeah. at the end of Apparently, Revenge of the like, Sith, not yes. communing with the Force for that long will age you that drastically. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes, and uh, yeah, and and Ewan McGregor is such a good actor. Yeah. I, I love I love Liam Neeson too, but well, it's like I wanted actor, to see him. He had, the, be- he had the beard tugged. Yes, yeah. he had the beard tugged down. He, he did. The, yes. He did the beard yes. tug already. And and that was the other thing too is that being someone. Um, who is, uh, you know, of a spiritual um, spirituality. I, I, I'm a Buddhist, which basically is to say I'm a secular humanist. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved the fact the whole way the Force was portrayed. as right. It is this thing for everybody that... Right. Yeah. Binds, binds us and yeah. then in the prequels it suddenly became this elitist thing that you uh, had to be born into and I'm like well that's Buddhism in reverse yeah. Yeah. you know Buddhism started yeah. out as being this thing you know only princes could practice if they you know and then it became something that was of the people and for yeah. the people well you can tell like Lucas was influenced by like a lot of Japanese films yes. like the Seven Samurai and those had you know some Buddhist overtones to them and it's mm-hmm. like I'm going to take this and I'm going to take this from like Buck Rogers and blah 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 and mm-hmm. throw it all together but like you're right he lost like you know that sort of like strong Buddhist overtone yeah. Yeah. and the thing that made it the thing that made it so special to the fans and to the people was that a farm boy can go save 
the, the, universe, the galaxy, right? You right. know, it's like you yeah. don't have to be some fallen prince. Well, it's also cutting know. the knees off of like the hero's journey. You yeah, know? yeah. Because like the hero's journey, like anyone can step into that role. Yeah. <laughs> right. Good old Joseph Campbell. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I, I'm telling you that. Of course, you know, I discovered Joseph Campbell kind of as a result of uh, you mm-hmm. know hearing the Star mm-hmm. Wars influences mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. like that, and then he did that. Uh, amazing series with uh, Bill Moyers that that was done that I watched that and uh, you know that's really fantastic uh, for storytelling and Mm -hmm. how to tell stories archetypes yeah and uh, you know in terms of storytelling you had mentioned earlier David Lynch Uh, there's an interesting thing about that in high school I'll try and get this story quick because it can go a really long way In, in high school I saw Eraserhead while I was taking a film studies class in high school, and it was uh, 78, so it was Eraserhead's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky premiere sure, that I sure. went to see. And I sat and I watched that movie, and I went, someone's actually done it. They put a nightmare mm-hmm. on film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's a moment in Eraserhead where Charlotte Stewart, the actress who plays the female lead in that, drops to the foot of the bed and starts convulsing. And you've been seeing this movie that's just this random, bizarre stuff. And it's a filmed nightmare. And you're just thinking, I'm now seeing the weirdest thing that I've seen in the whole movie. Right, right. (laughs) And then she stands up and she's holding a suitcase. And you realize that you just saw the most normal thing you've seen in the movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That you thought you were seeing this woman just convulsing for no reason. But no, it's because the suitcase under the bed was stuck. Yeah. And yeah. I, I wrote in this essay, I wrote, this is how you surprise an audience. Mm-hmm. You set up their expectations. You give them all the necessary information to make the wrong conclusion. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then you surprise them yeah. with something. It's not by just shit jumping out at you and startling you from behind a door or something. Yeah. Or whipping whipping up a M. Night Shyamalan twist just because. Just because, yeah. Well, that's the thing about the Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. Those twists weren't just because. A lot of them did have those red herrings, like what you're talking about. And so they made narrative sense. Right. And it was, was, yeah, there was always some sort of karmic retribution that was being Mm -hmm. illustrated in that. But the capper of this whole story is when Jess and Laura uh, screened in Louisville is that Charlotte Stewart who played that role in the movie Fantastic. is who presented me with the award for best film. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. and I just I had gotten a chance to tell her about that too because they were there. She was in Tremors, which was there. Mm-hmm. They were doing the 25th anniversary screening of Tremors. So that was I loved that movie when it first came out and I thought it was such a quirky weird movie and then she was there. And then also uh, my uh, high school teacher who I'd written the essay for was actually there at the screening. Wow, I hadn't a, seen her for like what thirty a years. Yeah, of, it was. It was. It just felt right. But yeah, the Twilight Zone thing about when I was in uh, elementary school, we read a Twilight Zone episode. The script mm-hmm. for a Twilight Zone episode: "The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street." I love that one. Yes, that's I one of my all-time one. favorites. And that, like- um, for me, a, a lot of people miss like the historical context. Like Rod yeah. Serling in interviews had said, I can't talk about things like racism yeah. or the Red Scare, things like that when it's people. But if it's aliens, if it's, if it's aliens. monsters, you know, like mm-hmm. nobody gives a shit. Yeah. Like, 
Exactly, exactly. And that was one of the things that really deeply influenced me to see that. It's like, oh, wow, it's allegory. It's metaphor. Metaphor, yeah. yeah, And, uh, you know, you you just, uh, Rod Serling had an interview that was at the end of that uh, story in our little primer, Mm -hmm. you know, our little elementary school primer uh, that said, I'm a teacher, first and foremost, Mm -hmm. and I write because I want to teach a moral lesson. Entertainment is a byproduct Mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that's the exact opposite of what everybody tells you. Say, no, never try and teach a lesson. Mm -hmm. But I just thought, no, that's it. I think that I, for me, I have a responsibility not only to just say what's inside me, but to maybe like offer somebody something that yeah. helps them on the journey too. One thing that stuck for me that um, my college teacher, Marshall Vanderfoe, always said was hide the medicine in a piece of cheese. Yes. You know, <laughs> like if you want to teach a moral lesson like that or you want to say something and really affect people, you have to do it in such a way that mm-hmm. like it's entertaining and they want to be Digestible. Into it, you know? Yeah. yeah. They need to mm-hmm. like have that, you know shiny like story around it or mm-hmm. you know something because if you just preach at people like don't right. be mean to others because yeah. they're different like they're not going to hear you but if you put like aliens and sci-fi elements and yeah. stuff like that they're more apt to like really get the mm-hmm. lesson and know? and and uh you know gene roddenberry picked up on that mm-hmm. with uh oh, with yeah. trek oh yeah and of course that's the way uh doctor who has gone oh yeah. without most, question most assuredly <laughs> you know to, to illuminate the human condition and and Serling, there was an interesting thing. I only recently found out about Rod Serling. You know, he was a young man in World War II mm-hmm. and had such severe post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. that he had nightmares basically every night of his life. Oh, yeah. And I think, wow, what were Rod Serling's nightmares like? I but, feel yeah. like you can see some of, like, that... You know, he went through some shit in the yeah. war in mm-hmm. certain Twilight Zone episodes. I think a lot yeah. of that you comes know? through in Night Gallery. Night oh, yeah, Gallery. Yeah. Night mm-hmm. Gallery was a lot because because mm-hmm. for me, because mm-hmm. the fact that the Twilight Zone was mm-hmm. was black and white and Night Gallery was color. Yeah. The color aspect to it, it was always used effectively. Right. There were things, there were scenes in Night Gallery that were almost black and white. They were yeah. so muted in their colors so as to almost be yeah. black and white. And he would use these splashes of mm-hmm. color with lights or with, mm-hmm. with pictures or with this or that. Yeah. But, really but, good composition. Yeah. Right. And it makes it more, yeah, I definitely think that Night Gallery was more of a visual show than, yeah. than Twilight Zone was. Twilight Zone was a lot more about the writing. Yeah. And I think that, that, that they, they were really kind of trying to capitalize on the, the color and visual medium with 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 that but but there's a lot of things in night gallery that seemed a little more visceral yeah. a little more h- horrific a little night, more night gallery was was during what i was to- telling you about the uh, early 70s uh, renaissance yep. where things were beginning to become more graphic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, you know i mean the the uh, sensitivity rating had just come in and people were first beginning to define what is an R movie, what is an X movie. Right, right, you know, those, right. mm-hmm. They were tr- still really trying to figure that out. Yeah. And television was beginning to understand that it had to get a little bit more, maybe a little bit more sexual, a little bit more graphic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so Twilight Zone, or um, Night Gallery kind of came in on that. Rod certainly did not have the creative control over that that he did of, of no. Twilight Zone. No. So he was always very frustrated by it. Yeah, um, It didn't last as long. It, it didn't was, last as it, long. And as, it's not remembered as fondly yeah. as Twilight Zone I is. did see, you know, as a kid, I did see some stuff that really blew my oh, mind yeah. with 
that, yeah. and there was some great stuff. One of my favorites from Night Gallery was um, it was actually a reworking of a famous Twilight Zone, uh, The Eye of the Beholder, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. it was actually one where this guy is um, this mutated-looking, very hideously ugly creature, um, and he has to walk around with uh, a mask on or he'll frighten people and stuff like that, and he's he's... They say, well, there's this colony that we can send you to on this other planet Mm -hmm. where, you know, and it turns out that there are people who look exactly like him on this other planet Mm -hmm. and he's considered very handsome there. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, the the whole thing that uh, Serling went through with, you know... um, beauty being in the eye mm-hmm. of the beholder you can yeah. work out so many different stories sure, on, sure. along that line and tell them in such interesting ways and you can you can tell them with comedy i'm also a great believer that mm. people remember things that make them laugh yeah and sometimes i've been you know when i use comedy in my writing sometimes people go well are you making fun of this and I go, no, to the contrary. I take nothing more seriously than I take comedy. <laughs> um, and and people do remember things that make them laugh. And in many ways, I believe that the most effective political tool that we've had over the last few decades has been John Stewart on The Daily Show. Oh, sure. Yep. Um, Satire. To get people to laugh at how absurd <laughs> these things are, you basically... You teach people what's ridiculous right. mm-hmm. by getting them to laugh at it. Right. And I'm, I've seen a few... Mel, Mel Brooks used yeah. that with racism. I mean, exactly. it's just yeah. satire and the, the all in the family. Again, mm-hmm. the early 70s. Yeah. Big, big time of, mm-hmm. of, of finally bringing those mm-hmm. critical issues that people need to be talking about, need to be knowing about the ridiculousness of or the mm-hmm. horror of, and bringing those things to the forefront. And yeah. uh, I've always called the early 70s like the golden age of, of yeah. American cinema because... The time, and that's what started this whole podcast. Was a right. conversation in a hallway at work about <laughs> about the 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 the, the, the introduction of mm-hmm. French cinema verite into American cinema culture in the early in late sixties, early seventies. Well, and I, I listened to your podcast uh, that you did last week, and you talked about this, and I went, okay, now you're talking about something that that I know and I witness, and it's very dear to my heart, which is you know if you show a woman being raped. It's drama. Yeah. If yeah. you show a woman enjoying sex, it's porn. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I that's yeah. what I grew that up where people were figuring out. to Blue out. Valentine, yeah. you know, yeah. like I yeah. mentioned on the last episode of the podcast. And it's so mm-hmm. shitty. It's so shitty because not only is that like making female pleasure stigmatizing, but it's also normalizing sexual violence against yes. women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and it was because it was largely due to when the rating system came in, it became a marketing tool. Oh, yeah. People began to figure out that it's like, well, our ratings make money. The G ratings aren't making quite as much money, so everything's now going to be R. And if something gets an X, as movies like Clockwork Orange and Midnight Cowboy did when Rocky they first Horror came out, show. yeah, they, they got <laughs> because it was like they were they were still figuring it out. They were just like, well, if the topic is sex, then it has to be an X. It doesn't yeah. matter what you even really well, show. And we're one of the only countries that gets so weird about sex. Um, mm-hmm. I posted this thing about, like, the 12 biggest misconceptions men have about periods. And, like, one of them is, like, you know, some men apparently think that, like, inserting a tampon feels good for women because it's like a cotton <laughs> dildo. And it's like, 
Oh my god, like first of all, like what the fuck, how does this idea even get propagated? But my Australian friend commented on the thread, he was like, America, once again, taking the cup for weirdest country about sex. Like, do you guys even have sex ed? Is that a thing in the United States? And I'm like, well, it is, but there's no federal standard, so all of the derpy religious states get to do whatever the fuck they want. We were founded by people who came over here on the Mayflower. Um, because England wasn't religious right, for them. Exactly. Because we they told. wanted to persecute people. <laughs> yes, exactly. With, with their religion. It's like it's like we were told. It's like, well, you know, America was founded on religious freedom, the freedom to burn twelve-year-old girls for witchcraft. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was, you know, exactly. Yeah, it's like yeah. Uh, England passed some very European countries all around the same time in the in the 1600s passed laws that yeah. that outlawed religious mm-hmm. persecution. It was a backlash from the Inquisition. Mm-hmm. They said no more. This is not allowed anymore. And these yeah. people went well. We're out of here. We're yeah. too much. We're too yeah. big assholes. We want to be able to fuck people over with like, our religion. What do you mean we can't torture people because they don't believe the exact same? thing? What? We're not burning us. Catholics anymore. Mm, right. Wow! Screw this. Let's go find a continent where we can put people to the stake. Yeah. Well, and there's basically also like if you look at the uh, tr- some of the transcripts, I guess you would call them that are whatever it exists from the Salem witch trials is that it did begin as kind of like a land grab because yeah. someone mm-hmm. who was uh, accused of witchcraft then got, you know, their land taken from them so yeah. the rich people were taking well, using that to take land. Well, there's also a lot of sexism yes. in, in that too in that, oh my gosh, this woman is smarter than me. Clearly she's in league with the devil. There's right. the story of, uh, there. oh, and there's the story of Susanna Martin which was actually one of the few surviving transcripts and it was turned, I actually found out about this story from there's a Celtic uh, song uh, the Ballad of Susanna Martin, and mm-hmm. it's basically she was accused of witchcraft for giving married men erections because she <laughs> smiled at them. Yeah. yeah, and it was like that's what it had degenerated into. Even from Landgrab, is just like, uh, you know, oh my god, it's like. Well, and we're still fighting. Like women yeah. are still fighting that battle nowadays. Today, like, they're still sending schoolgirls home yeah, for wearing shirts. I was just sur- about shirts. to bring yeah. up the dress code. It's yeah. still yeah. a yeah. woman's fault. Like men are never responsible for their penises their and their like erections. Like yeah. it's always the woman, yeah. you know, yeah. who's like tempting them. And it's you know finally nice to see a backlash against right. like these school dress codes that are like you're showing your shoulders and that's going to distract male students it's like how about we stop sexualizing our classmates mm-hmm. girls of color <laughs> being sent home for having natural hair yeah yeah for fuck's sake or yeah. like for wearing pants that are too tight and it's like uh these are my hips and this is my bone structure fuck you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean it's it, it, it's really insane and I, I can't even. Uh, yeah, I, I we, mean, we we talk about this. We wind up talking uh, about it's this. It's very every frustrating, week. Yeah. and you know, I have, and it does well, go is towards. I deal with in my life all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Now yeah. we can segue into my next project because <laughs> I have a new script, which is actually at uh, my film collective to be. Um, it's actually in the running for some funding, and it's called Control. Mm-hmm. And the basic plot, it's very difficult for me to talk about my scripts without spoilers, but it basically is a plot around a woman who is taking charge of her own sexuality and what the repercussions of that are. Did you write this? Did a woman write it? Like, um, just Uh, I did write it. I did write it. And um, I have a very long history of trying to write as well as I possibly can for female characters and Mm -hmm. the way that I do this 
is to not write for women, but <laughs> to write for a specific woman, mm-hmm. to pick the voice of an actress who I know really well, who I want to work with, and try and write for them. And then if that person turns out to be not available, I at least know what type I'm going for, and I can adapt to an individual voice. Mm-hmm. But I believe everything comes from character. Yeah. I didn't know if this was something that like your <laughs> film house was doing or something. Oh, you okay, yeah. Doing. This was something <laughs> that I had written, and we had a competition, mm-hmm. um, at, and we are trying desperately at We Make Movies to involve more female writers. Yeah. The r- male writers still outnumber the female writers um, by five to one. Yeah, and it's it, and which is really weird because I, I heard you guys talking about last week saying that in Hollywood, men outnumber women three to one or something. There are in the no in the business female executives like yeah. no female head executives in any of the major movie studios. There are also no people of color yeah. who are you know head executives of major movie studios. It's nothing it's, but white dudes. It's nuts because and it just may be the circles that I'm traveling in. I know so many more women mm-hmm. than I know men. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, right now at, at we make movies, there's been a lot of talk about well you know, what do we do? I mean, how do we get more women writing? And we have writers groups, you know, little satellite groups where we, and and we've been trying to get female writers into our group. And uh, there's one group that has specifically stated that their agenda is uh, is feminist writing. This mm-hmm. is where you go if you just exclusively have that agenda. Can I you have know? their phone number? Like, I, I want to. Sure, absolutely. And and you know, we make movies. We can go to uh, wemakemovies.org and you okay. can get on our newsletter and you can find out about us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are a community funded, right now, networking slash production company. We're mm-hmm. producing our own stuff, but we're also first and foremost a networking group. It is free to join. Mm-hmm. It is free to be there. Yeah. But we run on an NPR model. So mm-hmm. if you want to keep the lights running and want to keep things happening, uh, then you can donate certain amount of dollars per month, and then you get member benefits and, you know, kind of like uh, NPR, PBS. Whenever and I think of NPR, I just think of like, you know, for this donation, you get a tote bag. A tote bag. Yeah. We, we don't have tote bags yet, but <laughs> I'm willing to bet we'll get t-shirts soon. But yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, we've, I've talked with a lot of women about going like, well, do you write? And mm-hmm. they go, no, a lot of, a lot of women who don't write, who want to write will say that they're afraid that it is so, such a male dominated thing mm-hmm. that they kind of, feel chased out. And I I don't want anybody to feel that way. I want everybody to know that writing is terrifying under the best of circumstances and that to please, you know, write and create content. And Mm -hmm. particularly if you're a woman, I want more women behind the camera. Jess and Laura was produced with me uh, by two women, not because I said, oh, I have to have a woman producing, but because they were who stepped up. Yeah. Well, that's how I think Hollywood is going to change. Like, yes, I think there's a systemic problem that we Mm -hmm. need to address, that women are being shut out of, like, you know, places of higher power in, you know, mainstream filmmaking. Mm -hmm. But just by having more women in the writer's rooms, behind the camera, even working as, like, you know, people holding boom mics, that's going to help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an interesting story I have about diversity. When I was at the Louisville Film Festival, another one of the winning films was a film called uh, Follow the Money. Uh, You can find it on Twitter. I believe... um, 
It's uh, at Ben Unwin, B-E-N-U-N-W-I-N. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's the uh, one of the filmmakers and producers. What they did was they took... This is a, an interesting lesson about diversity. Um, they took a $10 bill and they went to a you know part of the midwest and they just handed someone a ten dollar bill and they said we're going to follow this ten dollar bill wherever it goes Mm -hmm. we're not going to direct who gives it to whom but we're just going to find out the stories of the people Mm -hmm. who have this ten dollar bill yeah that's a really cool concept the diversity that they got when you would think that okay well they started out in you know a fairly you know i guess a, a fairly white portion of the country that bill went to people of all races, all colors, all ethnicities, backgrounds, um, gay people, transgendered people got this $10 bill and, and got their story told. Multiracial couples. It went everywhere. And one of the things we asked them, did you try to direct this? From the point of view of it's like, well, you need to give it to a non-white person or you need to give it to somebody who's different. And they said, no. They said in a lot of cases we found out that it had gone to a gay person uh, or, you know, after the bill had been passed. Just Mm -hmm. by chance. So if you just let things happen, diversity happens. Right. When diversity doesn't happen, it's because there's a small group of people controlling it, Mm -hmm. saying the bill is not going to be passed this way. Yeah, absolutely. And that's 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 where it comes from. Because they said, you know, they they said a very interesting thing. They said, you know, money has its own chi. Mm -hmm. They picked a $10 bill because they felt that a $1 bill wouldn't move as fast, that a $20 bill would move too slowly. Let's see what happens with mm-hmm. a $10 bill. And it moved very fast yeah. all around the place. You know, it was just, But when you don't try to direct it, these were British filmmakers mm-hmm. uh, who wanted to find out about America. Mm-hmm. And um, you, when you don't direct it and you don't force it, Diversity, I believe, can naturally just happen on its own. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you're right. It is these imposed limitations, that's right. Keeping you know these stories from getting out. It's a small cabal of white men. Yeah, white it is. Yeah. It, is. Yeah. it is. Back to your um, your project control. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Through your process of writing and working with an actress mm-hmm. or with something like that, do you do you have discussions about? the character in terms mm-hmm. of here's what I wrote for this character to mm-hmm. think and say and feel. Mm-hmm. Does that check with you as a woman? Does mm-hmm. that, does that sit with you in terms of what a woman would think? Cause obviously you're not a woman. Yeah. So, yeah. so do, are, are you, are you, are you engaging in, in kind of checks and, and balances in terms of a woman's mm-hmm. perspective? Basically? Yes, absolutely. Once it gets to um, the casting part, that is an indispensable part of, as a matter of fact, that's really the way uh, television works. And I wish more feature films would work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the actors are involved at the table with the story going, it's like, well, you know, I'm the person who has to say these lines. I'm the person who's inside the head of the character, which is why you see so many people like uh, Brian Cranston, who is also executive producer on Breaking Bad, he was involved in, in the scripting and writing, and, you know. And, yeah. But I mean, actually, he did, you know, more kind of spiritually, I think, because he did say that he uh, only saw scripts in some cases right before they shot. But you know, you have to have writers who are sensitive to that. Now, with Control, I have shown it to. Uh, I did write that for a woman who's been very vocal about wanting to bring more uh, female to the 
uh, participation to the table and I did want to make sure that it resonated with her and she liked it but she is such a busy working actress right now I'm not sure whether she'll actually be able to do the role or not mm-hmm. you can't be too locked into any one person I have shown it to another woman who's loved it we will probably audition once that's cast I am absolutely open to uh, rewriting something for that specific actor. But I want to deal with, uh, you know, here again, yes, it is important to know how things resonate with someone as a woman, mm-hmm. but I want to know how they resonate with someone as a person because they're mm-hmm. playing an individual. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want this to be, because my stuff does tend to be, uh, a lot of times I write characters who give voice to concepts. Mm-hmm. I want them to be fully fleshed out characters. Like in Control, we have three characters. It's a three character um, piece. Right. And I have had, you know, the one character, the female, is giving voice to women's individuality and their individual choice to, to say who they sleep with, when they sleep with, etc., etc. And, you know, it's none of your business. And then we have... Uh, the slut shamer. Mm-hmm. And then we have the guy who's actually the kind of other end of that who speaks overprotectively. Like, mm-hmm. well, you know, I- I'm not completely sure you understand the connotations <laughs> of your sexual. Her. Yes. Yeah. I'm not sure you completely understand the consequences the of your sexual liberty. <laughs> yes. So, you know, we have all, while all at the same time he's enjoying the uh you know her sexual freedom by sleeping with her but he's he's, i'm not sure you really get how dangerous men really can be yeah which actually and you know whenever you write something like that there's always people who want to sort of figure out where you as a writer are coming from Mm -hmm. and hopefully they'll never be able to figure that out a hundred percent i mean i i like to think that i'm a progressive person who wears that on his sleeve and that people of course know that I don't support you know right wing causes and right wing social agendas and stuff like that well, I but... don't think you'd be here if you did <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean you yeah. didn't listen to the podcast you know what you were getting into yes exactly here, so you're I... here, and you're here so. um, but you know so but <laughs> the people do can quite often uh, when I write a character um, I love to write misogynistic characters. I think it's very important to hear that voice to know how ridiculous it is. Yeah, you know, to and call to it out. and to yeah. call it out. But I write that I write that character quite often as the advocate of that character, to, so that it actually gets out there as it is, unadulterated, and that people can come to their own conclusion about it. And, you know, so sometimes, and that, that's the way I think tra- drama happens best, mm-hmm. um, is that when you do give voice uh, to all those different kinds of attitude, you know, I have two children. Mm-hmm. I don't like to say I have children anymore. They're grown-ups right now. But <laughs> I, being, you know, an artist and somebody who believes in freedom of expression and ideas, I never really wanted to censor what it was that uh, they were watching on television to a degree I knew that there was because we live in a very different world right now and I knew that with the internet they were probably going to see more porn before they were 11 than I had seen before I was 40 Um, (laughs) you know because it's just it's all out there so I knew that I needed to educate them on how to watch 
rather than what to watch because I knew that eventually they were going to see something. You know, they were going to see behavior that they weren't going to understand or whatever. And I, I explained to them at a very early age, here's what drama is. And it's about telling stories. And you're not always going to be showing good behavior. And it's up to you to decide what is good behavior. Not only that, but you're not only going to be, you're not always going to be seeing the consequences. Right, right. You know, that was going to be is, my next yeah, point. Yeah, is that it's yeah. like, and of course, what, you know, um, the whole, what used to be called John Wayne bloodless violence, where, you know, you punch somebody and they're immediately out cold and you walk on to the next thing you have to do. Well, I've seen people get hit and very rarely does anyone go out cold. They right. usually yeah. fight back, you know. Right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so... Uh, that I knew that they were going to be seeing all kinds of things that I couldn't have a hundred percent control of. Right. So I needed to educate them on how to watch television, and I think it's worked out well. I've got you know two great adults mm-hmm. who you know understand that uh, you know everything on television isn't oh here's how I should be behaving. You know? Yeah. 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 I think there's a lot of that missing. Like we talked about this before with the man show being satire, but right. they had to end the show because too many of those guys were like, yeah, this validates my shittiness. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, uh, Hi, everyone. It's Michael. I just wanted to jump in here with a special offer for you, the listeners of the Something Something Experience podcast. Audible.com is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I personally recommend The Smartest Book in the World by former guest and friend of the podcast, Greg Proops. It's a rollicking reference guide to the most essential areas of knowledge in Proops' universe, from the noteworthy names of the ancient world and baseball, to the movies you must see, and the albums you must hear. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash something2xp. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash something2xp for your free audiobook. If you sign up using that URL, they'll give us a little something in return, and you'll be supporting an independent podcast just like that. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. It's a difficult world right now to navigate. I Well, I don't think know. it's always the place of art to provide a moral consequence for right. characters. Mm-hmm. It's more of just a presentation of an idea, and you can show a, right. a despicable character... Mm-hmm. Get away with it, yeah. Because and they do in real because, life. Yes, because they happens. do in real life. Yeah. Because sometimes that happens. Yeah. Um, or you can sh- you can have a despicable character be the protagonist of your show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, The Sopranos, or you know, that's yeah. one one of many examples. What's or Walter really, White. Walter what's White. Really interesting is only white characters are given the space to be like Walter White's yeah, or like you're right. Dexter's right. or like the Sopranos. Tony Sopranos. Like, yeah. We've never seen like a black or Latino character mm-hmm. be the focus of a show where they're doing bad things and they're, you know, without like committing crimes. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, you know, they're never able to do that without consequence. And, like, I think that's something that we need to explore. Pulp mm-hmm. Fiction, Jules. Yeah. He, yeah. he is able to, I mean, at the end, he, he makes his own personal decision to become a, uh, a wanderer or, yeah. you know, like a... But or, that's the only example you mm-hmm. can think of, and that's from like the early like nineties. Right, right, you know? right, right. But, well, but, but I, but I was, I was 
say, not saying that not to refute your your mm-hmm. supposition, but just mm-hmm. to to give that as an example of yes. that kind of yes. thing. Of she, here's a black hair. Marcellus Wallace reaps no right. consequence of his mm-hmm. illegal slash yeah. immoral behavior either. That's a very that's a very interesting thing. And as a matter of fact, Jackie Brown. I was thinking about that. Tarantino. There was a movie <laughs> movie came out. Perhaps not the greatest movie. It's very controversial. I kind of enjoyed it myself, but it was called Splice. It was a Canadian movie. Mm-hmm. Did you see that? Was I haven't. that the one with like she was like a female Doctor Frankenstein? Female Doctor Frankenstein, yeah, right on the money. Like, yes, yeah. and it was. I loved re- that movie. I loved it too, and I, I mean, it's very controversial, uh, you know, from a filmmaking viewpoint, but also from. Uh, I know that there was immediately on the internet when the movie came out, it was like, this is so misogynistic. It's like, because it was not only the um, Sarah Pauly character was the Dr. Frankenstein who had committed the atrocity of this genetic experiment, but the CEO of the corporation that was funding it was also a woman. And I was going, wow, this is the first time I've seen this where women are actually accepted as powerful enough to be mm-hmm. the bad guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I was like, mm-hmm. I was actually really excited by that. But then, because it's the internet, the haters without, are the ones who sound out. Without being some kind of trope. Right, without, yeah. Without your fatal attraction, mm-hmm. without your, uh, what's the Sharon well, Stone like, movie with know, the legs. even like, you know, the devil and, wears Prada mm-hmm. kind right. of like female The CEO. bitch executive, yeah. right. Well, the and, bitch and executive. Adrian Brody in that movie, if you know the Frankenstein story, he's Elizabeth. He's mm-hmm. he's the wife yeah. in that, yeah. that, you know, I mean, in the Frankenstein story. And yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, it's it's a bizarre movie. Uh, I really, but really I did liked I did it. like it. I did like it a great deal. And uh, um, well, even just the way that she interacted with her mm-hmm. creation was so different than the way yeah. Victor Frankenstein interacted. Because like, whereas Victor mm-hmm. Frankenstein was like, nope, mm-hmm. nope, I didn't do it. I'm gonna run away. Like I can't deal right. with it. She mm-hmm. really wanted to deal with her creation Wh- and like see where it went and everything. Which like, is Frankenstein. Frankenstein, one of the first. One of the first sci-fi stories mm-hmm. of the modern age, yep. the first, pretty yeah. much, is yeah. by a woman, and yep. it's yeah. about bringing life into yeah, the we world. Talked about so, that what's many more feminist times. than that? You, know? you guys have seen May, the film I May. Seen May. I haven't. May is amazing. It's um, it's uh, Annabelle Bettis or whatever her name is, but anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a shy unassuming woman with kind of like an eye an eye thing where her mm-hmm. eye crosses and she has to wear mm-hmm. corrective glasses sheltered individual lives at home alone and just admires people and kind of winds up in a relationship with a guy played by Jeremy Sisto and mm-hmm. and they wind up she winds up being too weird for him and and but then she hits upon this idea of making the perfect man who's not going to shun her and she winds up making a man like mm-hmm. stitching her whole thing is she's a she's she's into stitching and sewing uh-huh. and she sews she gets hands from this guy and part this part from that guy and that part from that guy and stitches together a man made to order boyfriend and it's yeah. called it's called may and it's 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 bizarre and it's one of the it's just absolutely delightful oh, the, the, fi- the physical attributes of a man are what's most important that's so sexist <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. flip that script um, yeah exactly yeah, I'm a big so, fan of role reversals too I yeah, like yeah. seeing role reversals yeah. and oh another movie where like you know a character who um has the space to be the bad guy kind of but is you know our protagonist American Mary 
Have you guys seen no, that? No, I haven't seen it. Okay, it's um, it's this girl, and she's going to medical school, and she's like trying to deal with like her mounting bills and everything, and she starts taking jobs doing body modification mm. for people, like extreme body modification, and like she starts doing surgery on like these mob guys, and eventually like. You know, that's how she ends up paying for school is mm-hmm. doing like, you know, extreme like uh, life saving surgery for the mob and extreme body modifications. And eventually she starts making so much money that mm-hmm. she quits medical school. And there's other stuff involved. It also get into like gets into like rape culture and like power dynamics. One of the teachers, mm-hmm. you know, is abusive and stuff like that. But it's nice to see a woman you know, acting outside the law and mm-hmm. being presented as a protagonist. Because, like I said, most of the time it's usually, like, just Walter White and yeah. Dexter and The Sopranos, where mm-hmm. it's, like, white dudes, right. you know? Here, here again, <laughs> it's, like, it's it's drama, and drama can't always show good behavior. And mm-hmm. I feel it's very important, um, you know, for women to be allowed to now have as much fun as the guys have yes. been able to have. Yes. Because, you know, but at the same time, it's, like, one of the things that I've been saying for a while now is that I think it would be a shame if the feminist movement degenerated into women simply being allowed to do the same fucked up shit that men have done. I think it's wonderful to see I think, that. In, I think that's a phase, a necessary phase uh, of, it, of, yeah. of, of mm-hmm. swinging the door wide Swing open. Swing the door the other direction. So that you can, you know, well, this pendulum yeah. ride. I also think it's important mm-hmm. that women can do some of the same bad behaviors that don't hurt people. Like a lot of, yeah. you know, religious people are decrying, like, women are drinking as much as men, and that's why marriages are, you know, not mm-hmm. happening, and blah, blah, blah and slut-shaming and da-da-da, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important that women feel safe to get as drunk as men do. Like, women need the space to, like, yeah, Yeah. get drunk without fearing, like, being assaulted or raped or, Mm -hmm. you know, any of that stuff. And, yeah, and that is is something that that has to be... You have to work on men (laughs) with that. Exactly. And I... I, That's our... That's our... our bottom line too is is we got to stop concentrating on what and and microscoping what women are doing and concentrating on reeducating men. I've yep. been beating my head against that wall for as long as I can remember. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I will continue. You know, to beat because our it's head. like I mean, you know, the locker room where guys talk but about that's you know. The thing is, like, you guys have privilege. Like, the biggest thing that you two can do as both men and white men is talk to other dudes yep. because mm-hmm. they'll listen to you before yeah. they listen to me. Oh yeah, and they'll I, listen to you before they listen to. A man of color. Right, right. Can't you know? tell you how many times I've embarrassed guys at work for being sexist or racist or whatever. Yeah. You know, one of my, the last mm-hmm. job I had, I can't tell you how many times I, w- I would, you know, say very loudly, really, guys, really, we're going to be racist at 9.30, isn't it a little <laughs> early in the morning for that? <laughs> right. And it got to the point mm-hmm. where conversations would stop when I would walk in the room sometimes. And I there was like, is, there is an interesting thing in a feature film script that I wrote. Where uh, there are three people in a room, there is a white man, two crackers, and an African-American man. And the topic comes up about the Confederate flag. Now, here's the thing, and this is something that uh, <laughs> I've actually been uh, you know, experiencing for many, many years within the part of the country that I'm from, uh, is that if you have the dynamic, you know, Crackers will not talk with an African American about 
the history in this country of racism. Mm -hmm. They will not talk with them about that. But if you are a liberal white male and you talk with, uh, you know, basically what, what happens in this particular scene, the dynamic is the liberal white male takes all the heat Mm-hmm. And the African American man becomes invisible. They won't talk to him about it yeah. because they they know what the answer is going to be. Whereas the white guy is then suddenly they have to becomes get one more white guy a, on their a, side. It's a they race trader situation, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a race trader situation. Well, whenever the stuff with the Confederate flag comes up, I just point out that uh, neo-Nazis in Germany, because they can't use Nazi paraphernalia, yeah. it's illegal, will use the Confederate flag as a stand-in. Right. You know, yes. for like anything with a swastika. Yeah. So it's like, how are you going to argue that that's not racist when racists in another country are using your flag as a yeah. stand-in? And the, the, <laughs> the thing is, too, I do have a, a, a different perspective on this than a lot of white males do because, you know, my family is multiracial. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have... Uh, two nephews and a niece who are um, multiracial. And I would never go into a store in the South where, you know, we're from that was flying a Confederate flag. I wouldn't go in there with them. Yeah. You know, I mean, so it's like it's something that, you know, you need to be aware of. And I've done everything that I feel like I can do to call attention to that. Uh, well, everything. We can always do more. But course, the point yeah. is is that it's something that's steeped in my writing. I remember when I wrote that script, actually back in like 1997, <laughs> people were saying, it's like, do we really need to talk about the Confederate flag? Yes. I mean, isn't that over? Yes, and no. this was 1997. Yeah, and, and now... How much- the, yes. the South Carolina yeah. finally took the flag. South Carolina finally yeah. took the flag down um, this year. After that activist just climbed a yeah. pole and yeah. took it down, yeah. like, right? That yeah, that was amazing. Yeah. I think like that photo of her climbing the flag at dawn with that's her in her that, hand. That's, that's going to be historic. And it was you know? an African American woman who did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like oh, I think her name was Bree. I don't remember. I can't. Yeah, yeah remember. I can't remember. But that photo of her, like with yeah. like the sun coming up, and she's like holding the flag. Yeah. Like yeah. that's a historical photo. Yeah. Like yeah. that needs to be in textbooks. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, the flag of Iwo Jima. That's the it, flag on the moon. That's it the, does yeah. come down to you know how do you change other people? You know, to me, it's like the civil rights movements have always been most successful when the the people of the oppressed minorities say, "I'm doing." What I want to do and damn your laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, civil disobedience has yeah. been how it's happened. Nonviolent yeah. direct action. And they don't they don't go, it's like, well, change your mind. Yeah. They change the mind by um, you know, changing the laws and they change the laws by breaking the laws and calling attention to how ridiculous it is. Yeah, yeah. And I feel that the same applies for women. One of the things that has frustrated me greatly uh, being the age that I am, is that I'm still hearing a lot of the same things that I heard in 1971, mm-hmm. you know, about mm-hmm. women aren't paid the same as men for the yeah. same work. And it's like, why is it so happening so slowly? There was an article that I just saw last week that suddenly I just went, oh, my God, maybe this is what it is. It, it was, uh, I think it was titled, uh, All Women Have Done This. Mm-hmm. And it was talking about yeah, how all women, yeah, about how 
Basically, every woman has at some point taken the course of least resistance when they hear something sexist or when they're flirted with inappropriately or manhandled or something like that because they could be in physical danger. Yep. Yep. (laughs) And yeah, basically all women understand this and all women know this. And I went, well, maybe that's why the women's movement has been slow is because because they're they're sleeping with the enemy as part of what it is. When you have guys who will kill you for Uh refusing to go out with them like there was a woman who was stabbed for yeah. turning down you know a man's advance like you're in a no-win situation mm-hmm. because you have people saying like well why didn't you stick up for yourself because I could be killed and then you have uh-huh. people saying like well you were rude to him why didn't you just give him a polite answer because I could be killed it doesn't matter what you do you can still be killed yeah. I, I, I'm going to say something that's absolutely going to blow your mind I don't know if you've ever heard this argument made but I remember hearing this and it was one of the first times like uh, uh, a rape documentary a rape awareness documentary had been circulated and they were giving you know sides of the argument the misogynist side of the argument as well as the um, you know um, what now would I guess be called the correct side of the argument. But there was an older white man, surprise, surprise, who was talking about how he said, he said, you can't thread a needle unless the needle is still. Saying basically like rape doesn't really exist. And it, it was like, I that's such an archaic, insane That's attitude. Also somebody who has never been in a position exactly. where they have feared for their life. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. And but it's like that's that's the attitude that was pervasive for so many centuries or whatever. And uh, you know, it's it's. We're having to d- undo millennia, millennia, yeah. millennia yes. of systemic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Institutionalized, institutionalized, right. from popularized mm-hmm. from birth yes. till death, at every exposure, at every turn, mm-hmm. at every media junction, right. at every conversation, mm-hmm. sexism, and certainly and every violence and, I mean, and and disenfranchisement toward women. That's what we're having to yeah. undo. And certainly, every you know religious organization mm-hmm. too has a history of yeah. sexism because. Religions, you know, we we think of like um, in, in this country when we have separation of church and state. Well, what's that really protecting? Is that protecting the state from religion, or is that protecting the religion from the state? A lot of religious institutions are the way they are because the state came in and said, "Well, here's how we're going to control people through this mm-hmm. religion." Yep. Yeah, and, um, and it all goes back to controlling reproduction. And in right. order to do that, you need to control women's yeah. bodies. And and we've only recently, I mean, we, we you know those of us who who grew up with it. I mean, if you see the TV show Masters of Sex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sitting there mm-hmm. watching that thing, particularly in the first season, and going, "Well, this is the world I was actually born into." Yeah, yeah. and it's like within our lifetime, uh, most women nowadays know what an orgasm is. Yeah, back then they didn't. No. Yeah. you know, there's this God, those um, poor women. <laughs> um, um, Allison Janney. I mean, mm-hmm. there's this amazing scene mm-hmm. where the, Al and she won. I, I just went, okay. I, I actually uh, posted on Facebook afterwards. Anyone who didn't see last night's Masters of mm-hmm. Sex, you just missed Allison Janney winning another Emmy. And she, <laughs> she did she win for that. 
as where she's sitting being interviewed and you discover through the interview she doesn't really know what an orgasm is. Yeah. And probably because she's yeah. never had one. Yeah, exactly. Because and it's, it's this idea that like female pleasure is uh-huh. like just a byproduct of sex and that sex should be just about yeah. the dude getting off. Yeah, yeah. You know? And that's like, also like the best way to die alone if as you, a dude. If you teach <laughs> if you teach women that they're in control of their sexuality. A lot of guys are really afraid they won't be invited to that party. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and that's, that's where what it's I all think about. a lot of it that's comes from. That's what it's from. all yeah. about. It's mm-hmm. all about male male entitlement, male yeah. privilege, and, mm-hmm. and 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 it's like we've had this, and it's been our party, you know, for, for hundreds millennia, of years, millennia, and, and like, oh gee, you know, yeah. well let's try something different. We it's not exactly that. working out so well for. Fifty-one percent of the population, yeah, more than a, a certain percentage of well, the time. I think that a lot of young guys are figuring out now that mm-hmm. they need to be good in bed, or else they'll die alone. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's really, really encouraging. Yeah, mm-hmm. because like a lot of girls who are my age and younger, like we will not put up with bad sex. No, mm-hmm. we just won't. Yeah. It's yeah. like, oh, you can't complete the mission, get the fuck out of my bedroom. Yeah, yeah. You know? Because there's a line like and at the door of guys who can. That's terrifying. <laughs> to be. And it's education. Education mm-hmm. is where it all, all goes to. Yeah. You know what an interesting thing is, too, is that, you know, this is really wild, the movie Summer of 42, mm-hmm. which was one of the first movies that a lot of people, and it actually didn't come out until the 70s, yeah. but, you know, it was one of the first mainstream movies where people talked about condoms. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing that, you know, when it was on TV and with my dad, and my dad going, you know, my dad was in the army. It was going like, you know, we all knew that condoms prevented pregnancy, but you, do you know that most men my age didn't know that they prevented disease too? <laughs> You know, I mean, it's education. Yeah, that's my dad yeah, said. Yeah. He's just because they didn't really start teaching. They, ta- no. they, they the, the army taught. You know, they all had to watch the film. Uh-huh. You know, because you know foreign ports and all that. Yeah. They taught them condoms about about yeah. about pregnancy, but the disease the the disease thing. There was a there's a cartoon. Mm-hmm. There's a there's an army cart funded U.S. government cartoon with Mel Blanc doing the voices. Of, you know, GI GI Joe goes to a port and spends time with a lady and comes back with you know with you know fire crotch basically, yeah. and it's like use condoms because they'll help you pre- you know prevent disease and mm-hmm. and they it, there's a lot of really horrible racist overtones mm-hmm. too because yeah. oh those filthy foreign women blah there's blah blah. There's also sexist and slut shaming. Right, 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 like, right. There's those propaganda posters where it's like a cute French girl and it's like. You know, she could kill you more than a gun. Blah blah blah. Right, exactly. Because it's her exactly. fault. You know? Right, exactly. Not yours. For yeah, but that didn't me, come me, about until the Korean War. It wasn't yeah. in World War Two. Yeah, the yeah. Korean War and and Vietnam. That, yeah. that the that those you know the the, the inter- infantry men were given condoms as a mean of prevent of disease prevention as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like yeah, the, the information you know was always out there. Everybody just wasn't getting it. Right. Yeah. Because also there were people who were like. You know, like I know I remember uh, when we had a, in the early 70s, when there was a human sexuality thing, we all had to get, you know, signed permission slips. And a lot of parents yeah. weren't you, signing you it, you know. You still have kids not getting it because school districts will mm-hmm. mandate abstinence-only yeah. sex ed. Like, I went to a fine arts high school in southern Orange County, and southern Orange County is very conservative. And while the high school mm-hmm. was pretty liberal because it's like, yeah. fine arts, we had abstinence-only sex ed where it's like, 
You know, mm-hmm. the teacher was only allowed to tell us that the way to prevent STDs and pregnancy was to not have sex. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. so like, yeah. it's it's like the equivalent of these parents putting their heads in the sand because right. it's like, look, your kids are going to have sex whether we, you want them to or not. We had the same problem with my stepdaughter. Mm-hmm. She was in sex ed a couple years ago and the book only talked about, and that's illegal yeah. in California. Yeah, yeah. It's illegal, it's illegal in California. My wife wrote a letter to the school board. She wrote a letter to the local newspaper, mm-hmm. got her letter printed in the local newspaper. Mm-hmm. And here's this big story. And I believe because of that, they changed the curriculum at the school yeah. and, and brought out books that were uh, newer than 1983. Right. Because <laughs> that's what they were using was sex ed books from 1983. Yeah. yeah. Well, like, I know when I was going to school, like I said, the Orange County School District mandated that, you know, abstinence only was all that they could teach. And it wasn't until I was in college that we passed the law saying, Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. you have to have comprehensive fact-based sex ed, Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know? But it's like, how many kids could you have prevented from getting, like, How many teenage pregnancies would have that that prevented? How many, how many, you know... Mm-hmm. Cold sores would have that prevented. How many mm-hmm. whatevers would have that prevented, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. I, I believe that in addition, I mean, I think that you do need to have some sort of federal program so that, that this it's is taught in schools and it is standardized. And, but parents do need to be involved. Parents do mm-hmm. need to talk with their kids about sex. Yeah, like if you have moral obligations mm-hmm. as a parent, like – you don't need the school teaching that. Yeah, You're I didn't rely on the. Yeah, I yeah, didn't exactly. rely on the school to yeah. teach my uh, my kids. So stuff. many I, friends. I sat down. I sat down with my kid the month mm. before kindergarten started, mm. and we talked about everything. So many <laughs> friends of mine only ever heard about sex from their peers, who were of course only just I'm, figuring it yeah. out themselves. So, you know, I'm when you're guilty of that, my parents were very Catholic, and mm-hmm. like you know, all I got from them was like, mm-hmm. "Hey, you're going to have a period, and don't freak out. You're not dying. It's going to hurt. Ask me." for a Tylenol, blah, blah, blah. And don't ever have sex because you'll die. And I'm like, I don't know what sex is. And they're like, well, don't do it because you're going to go to hell and you'll die. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. My mom was a nurse and and still is. And and I was seven and I asked Mm -hmm. her, you know, where do babies come from? And she sat down and drew diagrams and got out a big old thick Mm-hmm. Sex, you know, book on the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Sex from 1956, which mm-hmm. is all very fact based. This is a college yeah. level mm-hmm. book that she gave me and left out. She also left out copies of The Joy of Sex and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. things like that mm-hmm. and The Joy of Massage and Popular Mechanics and mm-hmm. other things like that to, to give us an mm-hmm. education into, um, it's not just about okay. insert tab A and pop, question, pop B. Question. Um, I know this because, you know, we're good friends and you've talked about it on the podcast. I know you care about female pleasure oh, when you're without, having sex. Without question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you That's a, my mission. That's like one of the top, <laughs> like if I look at my life and my life's work, the top three, you know, top, top tier, tip, tip top tier female pleasure is one of my top <laughs> most utter priorities yeah. In, yeah. in this life. You, you know? take care of your partner. You're oh, not yeah. just in it for yourself like do you feel that part of that attitude comes from your parents being open my mom yeah yeah my mom my mom was Mm -hmm. i wouldn't really call my mom a full-blown bra-burning second-wave feminist but she Mm -hmm. definitely was you know she voted for carter in 74 Mm -hmm. 76 you know she she was there she's kind of taken a swing toward the right you know as she's gotten older but um but it, she was a very strong vocal voice. We mm-hmm. lo- we watched a lot of Maud, and we watched a lot of oh, All yeah. in the Family and Jeffersons, and we watched a lot of that Norman Lear important 
edutainment, if you will. Um, There there was lots of frank talk about sex. There was lots of frank talk about women's issues and not being my mom's favorite phrase was that guy's a chauvinist pig and and uh-huh. and always wanting and it, it runs very down you know very right a stripe right down the core of who I am of 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 making sure that I take care of women in whatever aspect of, of my life mm-hmm. they whatever role they fit into whether mm-hmm. it be friends or yeah. my 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 wife or you know yeah. mother sister but it's whatever never in like a chauvinist way like let me do this for no, no, you no, no, little no, 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 lady no. it's more can. like yeah. are you okay how yeah. can i help if you yeah. don't need my help it's fine i'm not going to be offended right yeah. right right yeah. people do uh you know and and one of the reasons i do believe that both uh parents and the school systems need to be involved is because parents do only teach to what it is that they know. Right, right. And, um, you know, I mean, my parents were Depression-era kids Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who grew up with extremely, you know, strict religious backgrounds because that was all they knew. I mean, hell was a very real place. (laughs) They, of course... You know, and like I said, it was yeah. the whole Masters of Sex sort of timeline that yeah. I was on. Yeah. I think I think now they're probably at where I was when I was about 11 or 12 or whatever. And so, you know, yeah. I kind of like watched this whole thing happening. Like, I'm never mad at my parents for like mm-hmm. not telling me more because like I get that that's all they mm-hmm. knew. They grew right. up Catholic yeah. and that was all they had access to. So that was all they knew how to do with it. And there were, right. there were parents... Who were basically explaining sex to their kids, basically, uh, well, it's pleasurable for the man, the woman does it because it keeps the man happy. Yeah, I mean, that's. Like you're just supposed to put up with it as a girl. Put up right. with it. Yeah. And which, which, of course, <laughs> it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Right. Yeah. So men only know how to. It's like, oh, pleasuring a woman? And you then, didn't completely then, hate that, did you? you and know, then hopefully yeah. at some point a woman learns how to self-fulfill her prophecy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well... Can I get a witness? Yeah. Um, but anyway... Exactly, um, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's uh, something that has been an evolutionary thing right. that mm-hmm. we've seen a lot. Of, I, I, you know, I'm 45. We've seen a lot of changes... Yeah, a, a lot of cha- and just a lot of changes this year. Yeah. yeah, but there's a lot of stuff that's very slow going, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is because of the systemic nature of things. Right, What's- we're working on chipping away, and we're working on shifting attitudes and 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 bringing light to these important things. And it's going to take more time and more effort. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting is I was reading um, this study that was done on hookup culture. And everybody likes to go like, oh, hookup culture, uh, you know, and like wring their hands about it and stuff. But men will focus more on female pleasure with a girlfriend rather than with someone they're just hooking up with. And mm-hmm. when they've talked to guys about it and interviewed them, they're like, well, it's because I care about my girlfriend, but, you know, if it's just some girl that I'm banging, it's some girl that I'm banging. Yeah, and I used to hear conversations about guys, they wouldn't do this and they wouldn't do that on, that yeah. on, a, on a first-time hookup. I'm like, why? Yeah, yeah, it's like, do you want to get invited back? What? Would yeah, you like my to goal, yes. my goal was always to, well, my goal was always for at least a twofer. Thank yeah. you, thank you for saying that because I have always thought it's like you know when guys are described as as players, mm-hmm. I always kind of go, it's like, well, that's a guy who's either never been invited back for a second time mm-hmm. or doesn't want to hang around until he gets figured out. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So so to me, it's like I don't necessarily 
and particularly at the age that I'm at, I don't necessarily envy the one-night stand no. culture. But yeah. let me tell you, if when I was 17 years old, you would have told me that there was a device that I could carry around in my pocket that would tell me who wanted to fuck me, and it was, <laughs> and, and it was also a telephone, <laughs> I would go... I've got something to tell you about your future. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like. The future is a glorious, I, I do, magical I, place. Yes, it's like, it, yeah, that is. It's yeah. like, uh, you know, and, and also that's the other thing, too, is that it, it's a lot of, with a lot of sex education, the guys are still being told, grab all you can. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. there yeah. is an aspect of, and as the father of a 17 year old girl, sometimes I don't think anybody should be having sex. I mean, that's just me. It, it's yeah. scary me because I do know that there is a vulnerability out there. I have seen it happen too many times. I have, from a lot of female friends of mine, have told me about nightmare one-nighters that they had, Mm -hmm. that they did wind up in fear for their lives. I do know a woman who... Yes, all women. Who, you know... And and one of the things, too, is that uh, one thing I do have to say is that guys do not take themselves off the market a lot of times when they get communicable diseases. And I do know a woman who decided she'd sow some wild oats and have a one-night stand, and three months later she was at the top of the liver transplant list with hepatitis C. Uh, and, you know, and also basically I just went through a college reunion where I just was seeing, we did the in memorial, and it was like, oh my God, every gay man I know from like 1981 to 1985 is gone now. Testing. Yeah, exactly. is really important. It is is very important. And I don't know, are condoms still a thing? I've been off the market for a long time. (laughs) I I have never had sex in my life without a condom. Like, Good for you. Good yeah. for you. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it's an important aspect of sex education to to understand that and and how to use it and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You've just and it's like it's there's no way around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable to talk with your kids about it, but you've got to do yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me personally, like I'm a germaphobe, and I used to volunteer as like a front desk person at Planned Parenthood. Yeah. So, like, if there's oh. anything you ever need to like put the fear of STDs into you, it's like seeing yes. people come in and out of there and I'm glad Planned Parenthood exists I'm glad that it's there to help people and I'm glad that they always send you home with a bag of condoms you know and I'm sorry so sorry that Planned Parenthood is under attack right now and it's not just people with assault weapons and and Mm -hmm. crap like that it is under assault verbally and financially and uh, you know what really scares me more than Donald Trump is actually Carly Fiorino I mean who actually could literally be the candidate Mm -hmm. Carly Fiorino could literally be the candidate uh, with the clown shoes that are ahead of her in the polls right now yeah talking about how Planned Parenthood is selling like baby parts which is complete bullshit it's yeah. bullshit it's, it's a lie it's and that's the reason why the guy went in and opened fire in Colorado yeah. Springs yeah. yeah yeah I mean my wife had uh you know I mean that was her health care yeah Planned Parenthood was her health care as a young woman yes you know still still yeah. you know 
Uh, I mean, for ages. And so, you know... Uh, like, I was I was talking to my boyfriend about this. I was like, I go to Planned Parenthood for a number of reasons. For, like, getting tested. For pap smears. For, like, birth control. I was like, mm-hmm. that very easily could have been me. And he's like, well, you live in Los Angeles. It's, you know, less likely to there happen here. We have wackos, and I'm like, yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, that still could have been me. I have mm-hmm. still been yelled at by people protesting outside of a Planned Parenthood, mm-hmm. like even in, in Southern Los California. Angeles. Yeah. yeah, like I do clinic defense every so often because, mm-hmm. like, there are religious people here in Los Angeles who will get outside and like yell at people and pray the rosary at them, like mm-hmm. while they're just trying to get you know like some medical care. Yeah, like it happens. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I remember the Stephanie Miller show uh, back when that was still a radio show, uh, and I listened to it regularly, and I actually called in with this um, because they were talking about should the right-wing rhetoric be responsible when the nut jobs go off and, you know, machine gun plays. And, and yeah, I mean, and my feeling is, is that, uh, well... The analogy that I called in with, uh, which they actually really thought was an important analogy to make, and I was glad I called in with it, was when some kids committed suicide because they listened to a Judas Priest song, Mm -hmm. the guys from Judas Priest had to go into court and answer for whether or not their song should have contributed. Right. Now, the answer... Columbine, Marilyn Manson, and video games, and all of that. And so it's like, uh, my feeling is, is that it's like... Okay, let's let's have the day in court. Let's actually say that it's like, well, you know, you had this rhetoric where you had a map with targets on it, and then someone went and shot up the targets that you put up the map for. Yeah. Well, then you need your day in court. Yeah. And if you are guiltless, you should want your day in court. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, I do kind of come out on the Frank Zappa mentality of... You know, people should be allowed to say what they want to say, even if it's stuff that you don't approve of, because right. how do we protect anybody but else? We have a but, white, yeah. male, right. Christian, conservative terrorism problem in this country exactly. that we are literally doing nothing about. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's important for these acts to be recognized as terrorism mm-hmm. and called terrorism. And like, called Christian terrorism. Yeah. yeah. These are Christian terrorists. Both particularly in the media and by law enforcement, because there is a very... Uh, distinct set of laws and set of like consequences for things that are deemed terrorism that are much harsher and these crimes are taken much more seriously Mm -hmm. if they're called terrorism versus whether they're called like a lone gunman the thing that scared me even more that sent shivers down my spine even more than the, the the terrorist act that happened in colorado springs was the flood of twitter Support oh, yeah. of that act yeah. of yeah. the flood of ignorant apes mm-hmm. on Twitter applauding yeah. that man going into that clinic and blow and shooting that place. Yeah. Right. It's the wild frontier right now as far as the internet goes because on the one hand it's like well okay now we know where the loonies are and you know I mean periodically friends of mine will say if you support this unfriend me now mm-hmm. and you know. I, I, uh, you know, I do get very frustrated when I see things like that out there, but it just lets me know how far we need to go. And I hope that stories can continue to illuminate these, these 
terrible situations and the ridiculousness. To um, play devil's advocate for a sec with the whole, like, if you believe this, unfriend me, I do that as an act of self-care. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. want anyone on my friends list who supports Donald Trump because Donald Trump is very racist against Latinos, and I'm a Latina. So, like, mm-hmm. I don't want people in my life who secretly think, you know, that I'm less than. Right. So right. it's an act of self-care right. to remove right. them. Exactly. You know? right. And we are we are part of a community. And, and self-care, if everybody practices, you know, self-care, mm-hmm. that's how things really can change through a community. Is that yeah. when people go, you know, well, and I'm... Also looking my, out for yeah. each other yeah, and, and, right. and care possessed. forward as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm a big proponent of yeah, we, we care for mm-hmm. each other by caring for ourselves and vice by, versa by for standing yeah. up for ourselves with what's yeah. right well so. you mm-hmm. you have to put your mask on first right. you mm-hmm. know like but yeah i do think that it's you know two halves of the same whole like you mm-hmm. have to care for yourself and you have to care for like other people and like watch out for your community mm-hmm Speaking of self-care, one of the things that makes me feel cared for of myself is watching Doctor Who, and I understand yeah. a Whovian. Ah, uh, yes, to completely I, swing the pendulum in a completely opposite I am, direction. I am one episode behind, so no spoilers, no, no, sweetie. No. But uh, you know, there is an interesting <laughs> there is an interesting uh, story I have about Doctor. Who. I was having a story conference with an actress friend of mine that I wanted to write something with. I wanted to write something specifically for her. And uh, we were at a coffee shop, and we were uh, talking about just different story ideas and our different concepts mm-hmm. of storytelling and things like that. And I started riffing on Doctor Who. <laughs> and she hadn't seen a single episode of it, so I just started going, okay, <gasps> okay, well, here, here's how it is. And it, like, it tells stories of the human condition, and I you know, gave some anecdotal stuff about some, some storylines and how deep it went. And then, you know, um, being, you know... The older man that I am, I had to stop the conversation and go to the bathroom. <laughs> so I stop the conversation. I go. I come out from the bathroom, and she's having a conversation with the woman who's sitting at the the table next to us. And so I get back to the table, and my friend says to the woman who's sitting next to us, because they're both laughing, and I go, "Great, what are they laughing about?" And uh, she <coughs> says, "Tell her what you just told me." And so the woman says. I thought you were on a date and you were totally blowing it with the Doctor Who. <laughs> but then, and here's another thing, she goes, she goes, I've never seen a single episode of it, but a really good friend of mine is on the show. And I went, really? Who's your friend? Alex Kingston. Alex Kingston, yeah. Oh, she lives God. in L.A. River Song. She almost, she almost brought her kid to the school that I was Oh, wow, at, so cool. That, yeah. yeah, I've missed her this season, mm-hmm. last two She'll seasons. She'll be back for Christmas. <laughs> yes, yay, good. Yeah, but I mean, there actually was my wife and, uh, and daughter who introduced me to Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. I'd known about it since the 70s. Sure. When, well, I used to get... Uh, I would watch Monty Python on our PBS because I had an antenna that was barely Mm -hmm. able to get the British Mm -hmm. shows, so I watched it. And I watched Monty Python, uh, but Doctor Who was always so fuzzy. That was the Tom Baker years, and I just didn't watch it because... It was pretty fuzzy, even if you... Yeah, exactly. uh, (laughs) Because it was the 70s. (laughs) But I actually had the good luck of the very first episode that I ever saw is the episode that Chris Hardwick says is the episode that every novice should see. Blink. Blink. 
Mm-hmm. Blink. That's that was the first episode that I saw. Because it's the doctor through the eyes of someone who doesn't know who the doctor exactly. is. Exactly. It's the perfect episode for the non-initiated. And, and it yeah. is exactly what we were talking about at the beginning, about that you don't get all the story. You mm-hmm. So you do kind of have to fill in and go. And you have the Carrie Mulligan character's journey through that yes. is your journey too yes. of finding out who the doctor is so I loved that that was great as a first episode yeah, yeah. you know and um, I'm one episode behind right now I would love to point. see Sally Sparrow again I think that was and that yeah. was such a great example of Mo- uh, of the power that Moffat can wield yeah. as a writer mm-hmm. because I always I know thought you've that been saying he's been getting better but I still think Russell T Davies is well yeah yeah I, yeah um, I think Moffat was Best under under you know the under the the production mm-hmm. the the mm-hmm. show running of of Russell Davis and yeah. and, and um, Russell Davis has much more of a finger on the pulse of real human drama in yeah. terms of real human relationships. Mm-hmm. If you go back and watch other shows that Moffat has done before Doctor Who, like Sherlock, like um, he's very good at at writing quirky characters within the context of human relationships, things like coupling, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Uh, where he's kind of, Moffat's kind of splitting his personality between two different characters, uh, the main character and the kind of weird Scottish character on mm-hmm. the show. Yeah. Um, and he's good at writing from that kind of almost warped, you know, kind of male-centric kind of it is. fumbling around in the dark kind of character and he kind of writes the doctor that way very mm-hmm. alien very kind of mm-hmm. detached from emotion not really detached but almost like kept away from emotion it is very male centric writing that Moffat does because I actually was just reading an article where somebody went through and compared the dialogue and screen time of the female characters under Russell T. Davies versus the yes. dialogue and screen time yes. of female characters yes. under Moffat and women have less screen time and less uh, speaking roles yes. mm-hmm. under him. Yeah. So there's I also le- there's also a, a, a little fewer people of color. There's a little mm-hmm. f- there's definitely a lot fewer LGBT characters. Yeah, because mm-hmm. Russell Davis was all about almost every episode had somebody yeah. in there who was mm-hmm. some form of all you know other than other mm-hmm. sexuality going yeah. on and. Um, you know. Yeah, and he yeah. did create Captain Jack Hark- John, John Jan Harkness, Harkness yeah. who, you know... Um, he will just bang anything. Yeah, oh, yeah. he's pansexual. Pansexual. That's pansexual. Great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you yeah. see the Comic-Con video where uh, Tennant and... Uh, and uh, John oh, Barrowman. John, John Barrowman, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Tennant planted a big kiss on mm-hmm. Barrowman. Yeah, that, that was a great... Yeah, that was a yeah. Great moment. Well, what I like is... Um, I can't remember if it's in Doctor Who or Torchwood, but there's a moment where a character asks him, like, so what are you? Like, in terms of his sexuality? And mm-hmm. he just laughs, and he's like, oh, that's so quaint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm from the yeah. 52nd century. We don't yeah. even, even discuss any of that. Yeah. But I love how... <laughs> how the ninth doctor was always like knock it off enough out of you yeah. stop yeah. it yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then when they when they bring jack back mm-hmm. um uh at the toward the very that when the master reemerges it's uh, mm-hmm. um 
uh, Derek Jacobi mm-hmm. comes back as the master, uh, and, and, and Jack Harkness rides the TARDIS through the right. time yeah, vortex yeah, yeah. to the end. And he, even 10 is saying, mm-hmm. yeah, we're old friends. And, and it's like, uh, you know, and he keeps telling him to stop flirting. He's, <laughs> he's, he's talking to Chando and he's like, stop it. And he's like, what? What? I'm just talking to her. Come on. You yes. know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, fluid sexuality is another, uh, theme that I have, uh, written about. And basically, here again, no spoilers, but, uh, you know, I really want us to let people be people. Oh, yeah. And and to understand that it's like uh, drama explores problems. And, you know, uh, people who have fluid sexuality, and now, you know, uh, I I mean, I applaud the great progress that that same-sex marriage has made, Mm -hmm. um, and that... I, I know that a lot of people began making arguments, began saying it's like, well, you know, there's going to be a lot of divorce. <laughs> oh, like there isn't already. Yeah. I mean, yeah. can we let people be people and explore mm-hmm. pursuit of happiness, you know, and, 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 you know, allow them to make mistakes, allow, you know, same sex marriages to be bad marriages or to be marriages that last X number of years and yeah. then come to an end of right. their own right. volition. Yeah. What's wrong with that? Let's well, be people. I think a lot of like the people who clamor about the divorce rates going up aren't excited that women are leaving their husbands you know because think about it like my grandma like didn't have an option it was like you stay with your husband because you can't get a job and now that like women have more options well my parents got divorced my mom couldn't get a line of credit that was 1975 or and and men stayed with their wives because they couldn't cook right yeah you know, or they, you know, needed, oh, you know, I mean, um, my, my mom passed away in 2012 and like my dad is just now figuring out like how to make grilled cheese and like <laughs> that's, pasta. That's kind of adorable. It is, it is, oh, yeah. but it's like, it's one of those things that makes me realize just how much he relied on my mom. Oh, and yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You oh, know, yeah. I have to remember like he's a product of his generation. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've talked with my aunt about this cause I'm like, he's a grown ass adult, like blah, blah, blah. Like, shouldn't he know how to make pasta? And my aunt's like, well, he grew up at a time where he didn't have to learn how to do that. Yeah. 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 You know, does he have a tablet of some kind? Um, he has a smartphone. YouTube. Yeah. He can sit and watch YouTube yeah. videos. YouTube tells you, teaches you how teaches to do everything. Teaches you how to do yeah. everything, the yeah. internet. Oh, and my gosh. He's, he's gotten, you know, a lot better yeah. about it. Yeah, that like, was the but greatest. Yeah, when my mom first died, he Always was like, the greatest tragedy for my parents' generation when, when the woman went first. Right. Said, oh, right. man. Right. The yeah, guy's not going to know how to. Whereas the women always knew how to take care of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so you have you watched any classic Who at all? Um, I have gone back and seen a couple, um, you know, the... the uh, kind of what smattering is on Netflix kind of thing, or, yeah, or even I, more so? I mean, uh, not that many, actually. I did see uh, a couple of the William Hartnell, actually, sure, sure. back to when it's like, I wish I actually... Um, um, which which doctor is William Hurt? He was the very Number first. one. Oh, okay. Number one. Space Grandpa. Yeah. 1963, Space <laughs> yeah. Grandpa. And, oh, and actually, very interestingly, did you see the uh, biopic that was made about yes. the people who started it? Very much and that it enjoyed was, that. It was yeah, a woman. Adventure in Time and Space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Written by Mark Gatiss, produced uh-huh. by Mark Gatiss. And yeah, there was, there was women, very yeah. member, and were the first instrumental in creating Doctor Who. The first director was an Indian-British man. Yes, yeah. yes. I yeah. mean, it was, uh, so it began its life yes. with that yes. kind of diversity. A Muslim, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, no uh, less, yeah. 
So yeah, yeah I mean it's uh, and and Thank that you of Sydney course Newland for allowing that to happen and it, it it did some of the stories did inform uh, early episodes of Star Trek you betcha too yeah you betcha. so um, one of my favorite episodes one of the ones that I loved and just the most ridiculously meta thing I really love meta uh, but the episode I can't remember the title um, where it was the uh, Doctor. It was the tenth Doctor, and they reintroduced the Sarah Jane character. Yes, school and, reunion. Yeah, that's school a reunion. Big, yes. big favorite of mine because that's yeah. a that's a whole big you know foot in the door to classic Who because right. Sarah Jane was considered as much as mm-hmm. as much as Rose is beloved. Yeah, Sarah Jane was even more so back in the seventies and eighties, and you know, and well, and, and like I can't tell you how many Doctor Who fans I've run into who don't know that sonic lipstick is a thing. Right, that that right. was something that Sarah Jane had. Right, you right, know? Mm-hmm. right. Yeah, the Doctor <laughs> gave her that, and you know, it's in the context of that show. But there was another series that that Sarah that Elizabeth Sladen was on. Um, in the 80s called Canine and Company where it was yeah. her and Canine uh-huh. um, and it was mostly like a kids show uh-huh. um, uh, but uh, it was uh, it, and, and it was interesting it, it was all earthbound mm-hmm. adventures you know uh, but uh, yeah I, I loved that episode because of how Tennant who grew up watching um, Doctor he, Who and watching Sarah Jane mm-hmm, and having mm-hmm, a crush mm-hmm, on this actress right. when he was a little kid yeah. and saying well, he wanted to be an actor so that he could play the Doctor. Right, mm-hmm. right. And then he wound up getting that. Yeah. And it's almost like, because I wanted to be, when I was a kid, I wanted to be young Obi-Wan. Right, when right. And so he actually got to live that yeah, dream. That's nice. And he talks and actually, uh, there was... Um, an obit. He actually, if you, can, I think you can find it on YouTube, mm-hmm. an audio obit that he did when for, uh, for Elizabeth Sladen, Elizabeth Sladen uh, died about you know what that was to play that scene. And if you look at how it's written, it's a really interesting sort of human condition thing where it talks about being out of time with somebody who you're in love with mm-hmm. and not being in sync. Yeah. And, the goodbye yeah. scene at the end right. of the school reunion before he says, come on, come with us. And she goes, no, I've had enough. And yeah. and it's like, you know, that whole thing of, of you know, be good to Rose because, you know, you're mm-hmm. going to wind up leaving her behind too. And, and I know how that feels. Yeah. So you need to be aware of, 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 of how you make people feel when you say goodbye. When you, when you have a cast who literally become those characters it's really a special thing, oh, yeah. and that's why I was yeah. so happy that you guys liked the casting and the acting in Jess and Laura, because mm-hmm. it was a difficult thing for me to come to, because I had written the roles, actually, many years ago for myself and another actress to play, and we had kind of aged out of those roles, so I never really thought that I would be able to go back and recast that with other people, and then when I found Brendan and Terry... They gave life to that in such a way that I knew I would feel safe shooting it with. I that. never, at one moment, was taken out of the. Oh, good. Of, out of the, Thank you. the yeah. piece of, of of this is being acted. This is. Mm. It never felt acty to me. It was. It was always felt very, mm-hmm. very real, very genuine, very. There was no hesitation. There was no phoning it in. There was mm-hmm. no. I'm doing what I think people like this are that it was they were those people and Great. that's what I liked about it. You yeah, really yeah. chose well and directed well and they acted well. When and, when you do it well and you know it you can catch lightning in a bottle as we were talking about with Doctor Who 
the characters can take on a life of their own in 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 people's imagination and that's to me the most successful storytelling when people come up with their own stories i've had a lot of people in my film collective who saw jess and laura who said as a direct result of that we're going off and making our own project mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know that's to in, me in that yeah that, to like inspire I said, it, it took people, my brain yeah. and just kind of pried it wide open and, and brought all these questions and mm-hmm. just made me think in all these different directions of where that story was coming from and where that story could go mm-hmm. and what other kind of stories could spin off of it right. and that sort of thing. And yeah, it's like it's like what we were talking about with Doctor Who is that all the people currently working on Doctor Who, cast members, crew oh, yeah. members, etc. And Capaldi. Capaldi who, who is just... He's a really good Doctor he's he's amazing. Yeah. I think... I, I, I say this often. Tennant was, without a doubt, the best actor in terms mm-hmm. of technical, theatrical acting mm-hmm. to ever play the Doctor. But I think Capaldi is the best at being the doctor because mm-hmm. he so fully embodies every single previous doctor right. from moment to moment mm-hmm. scene to scene knowing the history that I have with with doctor who of watching all 50 years of it uh, of w- watching it since I was a mm-hmm. little kid I see all the other doctors in him more so than I ever have with any other doctor. There, there's an aspect of Doctor Who which is central to my writing, mm. and it's central to all the writing that I love, um, and it's central to my practice of Buddhism too, which is that we're all neither good nor evil. We're all everything. It's our choices that make us so. Yeah, and yeah. I love the episodes of Doctor Who where you see that this guy possesses, this man possesses power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with the power he has, he could choose to be ultimate evil if he right, wants right. to. Right, He makes yeah. that choice every day. And it's like, and now particularly with the last episode that I saw where he's angry. Yeah. No spoilers. Um, no spoilers. Haven't, but I'll go back to, you know, one of my favorite lines from Doctor Who is from A Good Man Goes to War, mm. where... The uh, nemesis says, uh, the anger of a good man is nothing to fear. Good men have too many rules. And he says, good men don't need rules. Today is not the day to find out why I have so many. Yeah. You know, we we are good because of the choices that we make. And to me, that's, you know, when we want diversity and when we want equality for people, we have to constantly remind ourselves, you know, particularly those of us who are white male, uh, we could be the oppressors if we chose. Mm-hmm. We could try we to be the oppressors. We're making a choice every day We are making a choice yeah. uh, to include. Yeah. We are making a choice not to, to direct where the dollar bill goes. No. Yeah. I don't have that yeah, many yeah. to spread around, but, you know, yeah, I do yeah. try to make sure that yeah. that I, you know, make the choice to include everybody with a place at the table. When we had Chris Murphy on the podcast, um, Chris Murphy is a, a, a transgendered person, and uh, they they came on and and they talked about what a safe they they came into the podcast not knowing what it was about because it was a friend of a friend kind of thing where yeah. we we hooked up with Chris and we are doing the podcast at my home and and Chris talked about not knowing what to expect to come in and because mm-hmm. you never know who's going to have what weird questions or this or that. But to come in and then have Chris say what a safe space that we created for Chris, mm-hmm. and I actually got choked up on the podcast and mm. got emotional because it, yeah. it was so important to me to create a space, a safe space, and yeah. to be 
an example of of not one of those people who's right. going to oppress and and and, yeah. and well, just to have that validation that like we're both being really inclusive. Yeah, you know? yeah, trying to be. Yeah, yeah. 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 We're at an hour and 54. This flew by. We're almost <laughs> wow. to two hours here. Um, is there anything real quick, anything other than Jess and Laura when it's going to be widening in, in, in terms of viewing, but mm-hmm. anything else that's out maybe by, uh, of yours or someone else's that you're recommending right now that people see or... Well, um, I would recommend uh, we have a lot of things going on with We Make Movies. As I have said, that we are on our way to trying to become the first sort of fully realized, member-funded production company. Our motto is Let's Fix Hollywood. Cool, cool. Um, and uh, you can find us at wemakemovies.org. Uh, our Twitter handle is wemakemovies with a Z. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also hashtag wemakemovies with an S uh, to find out. We didn't get we make movies with an S for our handle, so just remember our handle is with a Z. Okay, we'll put up um, links to everything. And then, you know, you can find us on, on Facebook, and you can find me at Patrick C. Duncan, um, and also at Jess and Laura, uh, and it's Jess and Laura, it's J-E-S-A-N-D-L-O-R-A. Cool. So uh, that way you can follow us for announcements. I'm hoping we have some big ones coming up mm-hmm. here very soon. Cool. Um, I just binged watched all three seasons of Vikings because oh. my good. yeah Danny introduced yeah it to my me wife and I was hooked her on beard the first porn. episode <laughs> yeah yeah well not only is it like hot guys with long hair beating the crap out of each other which makes my id really happy um, there's also like they give time to the shield maidens like one of the principal characters is the shield maiden and she like you know, has her own character arc and her own rise to power, which is good. And I've noticed in every single battle scene where there's, like, the Vikings, like, going at it, there's always a handful of shield maidens in there. So it's not just, like, dudes fighting dudes. Like, you know, there's girls fighting alongside them cool. and everything. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, yeah. Very cool. We, <laughs> we just started Jessica Jones and are just fucking in love with it. It's yeah. amazing. Um, <laughs> just enjoying the hell of it. We're only three episodes in. Um, and, and, and they didn't hand every hand, kind of like with, uh, with, um, Daredevil, it's a slow burn mm-hmm. in. They don't hand you everything at the beginning. They mm-hmm. challenge you a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things they don't explain. I have no familiarity with the comic book character with the, with those stories. So this is all brand new for me, along with a lot of the other Marvel stuff. And it, and it's just, it's very artfully done. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's, and they, they, they show this woman who, is so very afraid of her own power and mm-hmm. and kind of coming into being okay with that and mm-hmm. and trying to just navigate this dark past she has. And that's pretty much all I'll say about that. I'm actually behind on a lot of my binge watching because I've been so busy with actual filmmaking of right. my own hey, make your thing. that I haven't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a season behind on House of Cards. I'm only halfway through season two of Orange is the New Black. Mm. I began watching the first couple of episodes of a show that I'm kind of into, uh, The Bastard Executioner. Mm. Uh, it's uh, Katie Seagal oh. plays this uh, priestess. She's the, the big name that's on there. Nice. Um, but it's an interesting show, kind of medieval, about this uh, executioner who's actually a spy for the revolution, mm-hmm. uh, but he's working for the oppressive authorities. Mm-hmm. And there's some interesting female uh, sort of uh, de' Medici kind of uh, characters in mm-hmm. it, uh, some women who are in charge of some governmental systems in a very... Uh, Machiavellian way. Nice. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's uh, 
there's just so much cool content out there. Um, I sometimes worry that it's we're going to glut, uh, you know. But uh, at any rate, yeah, it's it becomes sometimes a low signal to noise ratio to find mm. out. So you know, hopefully through social media and promoting. You know, some of my stuff can get some attention and Fantastic. people can see it, you know. We'll yeah. definitely put up links Use to those hashtags. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you can find me, as always, on Facebook as Kitty Brown. I'm on Twitter as Kitty Brown. And I'm on Instagram as Black Magic Woman. And that's magic with a K, the way Aleister Crowley spells it. <laughs> Ooh, Crowley, uh, yeah. I'm at St. Michael on Twitter. That's S-A-Y-N-T-M-Y-K-L underscore St. Michael on Instagram. dun 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 dun, dun. We now have a domain name. We are Woo! now something2xp.net. That is the address and permanent home of our blog. And coming soon, sponsorships. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook and Google+. Check out our blog and listen to past episodes on something2xp.net. Email us at something2xp at gmail.com. And remember, please be kind. Just listen to the Something Something Experience podcast with your hosts, Michael John Simpson and Kitty Brown. Something 2XP was conceived and produced by Michael John Simpson. Intro music, Ways to Change Faces, and outro music, Scorpio 37, was written, produced, and provided by the talented Sebastian Ciceri. Please visit our website at something2xp.net. You can find us online everywhere as Something2XP. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook and Google+. Please help support our podcast and get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash something2xp. Email us at something2xp at gmail.com. We invite your feedback. Please be kind.